Good evening. Good evening. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. How are you, Angie? I'm actually so much more relaxed today than I was the other day. Awesome. awesome. Yeah. I just said awesome at the same time as you, and I thought my voice changed. That was weird. <laughs> it was like that. I have all state. Okay. Anyway. Uh, all right. So, how was your cones? Pretty sweet. Yeah. Are you a trickster on them? Can you, like, do stuff? Yeah, yeah. I, ah. I'm getting pretty good. <laughs> I've been doing it quite a, quite a bit, watching a lot of videos on YouTube. Really? Yeah, it's fun. So, like, you're getting, like, serious, like, tricks. Like, the tricks that they do, the crazy, crazy, crazy leg type tricks. Yeah, rubber legs. Crazy rubber legs. legs. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I yeah. actually heard from my friend Jackie in New York, and she's like, everybody's doing cones again. That's crazy. I was like, wow. Yeah. All right. Well, I, I wanted to apologize for being such a maniac. Last time, I, I probably have some, like, 15 open-ended topics that... Uh, that's is there, like, like, is there some... Are you fiddling with, like, paper or something? Just for a second there I was. Or, like, typing? There was just a lot of uh, back background noise there <laughs> that was weird i don't know i just i did pick up a piece of paper but can you hear me okay because i have this yeah. like really weird like pilot headphone thing on my head yeah you sound pretty good okay uh, not too loud no all right i'm good so, well uh, it was it was really interesting to hear you talk yeah <laughs> about uh yeah about starting the magazine and <laughs> you're you're uh you're fun to listen to well, thank you, Todd. And you got some good fucking stories, too. I've got so many stories, it's ridiculous. I was thinking about that, I was like, oh my god, like, I was just a babbling idiot, and you probably are all confused. There's a couple of things I should probably back up and sort of put into context. <laughs> you know? Like what? Yeah, feel well, free. Well, like, uh, um, I guess, I mean, a lot of people just don't even know, like, how everything began with, like, skating and stuff, and... Um, like, I'm like third generation, second, third-ish yeah. generation, and, uh, yeah, like first generation was, uh, well, you know, Rollerblade came out with these skates, Scott Olson, and, uh, they, they picked it up in Minnesota, and there was like, uh, only a couple, a handful of people, I mean, they didn't know what to do with the company really at first, and there was a guy named uh, Chris Morris, who was like an extreme skier, uh, or at least a skier, and just kind of an all-around crazy kind of guy. And he was one of the first people on him, just kind of going nuts, doing whatever, you know, like, ooh, this new toy, what can I do? So he was just kind of going ape shit. And uh, I don't, I mean, this is before my time, so I'm like, you know, obviously, like, this is just from my perspective at that point. But um, they had gotten together. They, like, first thing they did, I think, was get some people on the on the boardwalk. Where they got Jill Schultz. You know, uh, Charles Schultz's daughter from Peanuts uh, fame. And she was an ice skater. She's always been an ice skater. And uh, she was responsible for, you know, like the ice capade stuff with Charlie Brown and all that. So they had her and they got, uh, I think, I don't know if Chris Morris ever did the, like, uh, boardwalk thing in Venice. But they got several people, you know, to, like, just kind of cruise the boardwalk in the skates to, like, get them known and see what they people could do. Yeah. And one of the people that they actually got in there was uh, Doug Boyce. You know, and AJ, everybody knows Action Jackson. Action Jackson. Yeah. Um, but Doug Boyce was a surfer, skateboarder, artist from Long Beach. 
and they got him on them. And so, you know, right away, uh, he t- he's my, to me, he's my predecessor. He's the godfather of skating because, um, you know, outside of what anyone else was doing, Morris and AJ and what have you, he, he kind of had a, an immediate focus already from his surfing and skateboarding. He already had a focus on what he wanted to try to do on the skates and, and naturally what he would attempt to do and how he would, how he would actually skate. So um, he's the one that gave me my first pair of skates. And, uh, you know, he was the guy that, you know, as this new thing was sort of developing, he was the one who was beginning to do things that ended up being our industry. And uh, you can pretty much credit him with all of that. He was pushing really hard to get skates made that were, like, uh, more geared toward what we were doing and so forth. He got a little bit frustrated with that in the end. I, I'm, I think he broke his ankle. I'm not sure. But, like, you know, just trying to skate ramps and stuff on him. You know, you got to remember there was no street skating, obviously, other than kind of what the Wacky Modes is right now. Yeah. And uh, so... <clears throat> Doug was like uh, just the beginning of everything, and so that I, I consider that to be uh, first generation. Second generation is when they started going. Okay, you know we're getting some popularity here, and a kid named Chris Edwards got on the skates and started like you know we all know what Chris Edwards did when he got on the skates. So he was pretty much him and uh, a guy named Tim Gantz and Jimmy Trimble. They were sort of uh, second to come along, and Pat was sort of in that mix. And then, and then, and yeah, Pat Parnell, you know, they Pat started Parnell. to like do some stuff on the ramps and so forth. That's how Jess heard about it. You know, it was, uh, I think that there was something at a trade show, uh, it may have been at ASR or something, but Jess had gotten wind of him. And, you know, you know, like I said, he was looking for a management type deal. So, you know, that was just kind of forming right there. You had Chris Edwards doing demos on the ramps. And that was like the first time I saw that. I was just like blown away. I was like, holy cow. You know, like, uh, it was just amazing to see what Chris would do on a ramp back then, way back then. Um, so, you know, when we came into the picture, when I came into the picture and so forth, you know, they had, Rollerblade by that time, had kind of decided to put together this dance team to market the skates. And uh, so that was kind of Jill Schultz's realm. And her partner in ice skating was always Chris Mitchell. So, like, those two were sort of the king and queen of the dance era. And, and so that... Rollerblade at that time, what was going on, it was kind of splitting in two directions. So there was, you know, us, me, Pat, Jess, uh, Jimmy Trimble, um, Frank Noski came around right about that time, uh, JT, John Tyson, Tim Gantz, basically like 10 people. And we were doing something totally different, but nobody wanted to pay attention to that. So that would be uh, really like third generation. Yeah, and that, that kind of is the seed. That's where everything sort of started, was right there. Yeah. And everything, of course, was on ramps. And, uh, you know, we put together vert service. It ended up with, like, contracts with Rollerblade. And there was a lot of animosity back then about, uh, well, there was with me. <laughs> that's, that's where it kind of led into the getting fired thing is because the two, di- the two different directions. And Yeah, uh, it was, like, dance and mm-hmm. the ramp skating. So when you say dance, like, what did that look like, just dancing on rollerblades yeah well it was kind of half ice skating half like just dancing spinning around you know uh, partner stuff lifts imagine ice skating pairs or or even just icing ice skating dancing you know kind of like uh they had brought this choreographer in from la this um andrea and uh 
so they were putting together routines, you know, it was like, you know, this many guys and this many girls and, and just doing these routines, you know, with the, like, the spandex and all that stuff. Okay. And, uh, yeah, they, they, they pushed really hard with, uh, myself and Chris Edwards, especially, uh, yeah. they seemed to leave Pat alone a little more in jazz and stuff because Chris could dance. And I came from a background of like, you know, I did lifts and everything with water skiing and, and with aerial acrobatics and all that stuff. So they really, and I'm a girl, so they like really pushed that us to like try to make us part of that team. Yeah. And so we were constantly fighting that. And um, that was that was a big struggle. And it wasn't until we started to like really kind of gain a little bit of uh, attention that was not... It, it was not looked upon very kindly by Rollerblade. They didn't want the attention there, like I said, you know. But right. uh, we started to get the attention, and with me traveling around um, occasionally with the dance team and so forth, and like, you know, immediately jumping off to find the nearest ramp I could and other skaters, yeah. um, we started to like get a little bit of attention. And so at that time, Rollerblade wasn't really like pushing the ramp stuff. They were they were anti pushing it. Right, they were it, trying to push their dance thing. Yeah, yeah, because that was more commercial, more more friendly, more any, anybody can do it. You know, it was more about pushing the speed skating, the uh, the the per, the person going to work. You know, the um, mode of transportation, the health, and and all of those aspects. They didn't want this extreme thing because that pigeonholed them the same way as they didn't want anyone to call it rollerblading. But you know, it's there. And uh, <laughs> everyone refers to it as rollerblading. I was really happy that we finally actually, I actually finally grew the balls to just put put that on the cover of the magazine because you know they had to deal with lawsuit after lawsuit trying to keep people from using that word. Yeah. Um. So they wouldn't become Kleenex. But I think it's inevitable. You know, it's going to become that. So yeah. Uh. You know, we. I was I was out there like kind of pushing things and and bringing it back home to these guys and saying, you know, there were some skaters out in Texas, there were some skaters here. And by the time we finally got a request to do a, a, sh a demo show somewhere, it was going to be an actual, like, get in the van and go. And we were all really excited about it. But they actually wouldn't let me go because they said, well, what would that look like if a girl showed up and got out of the van with all these guys? So I kind of got dicked out of the first tour, which wow. kind of kind of really sucked but uh, there were there were a lot of issues like that I mean it's it's way accepted now but like there were there were a lot of issues that came along but um anyway yeah so we started to get a little bit of notoriety and a little bit of like you know requests a lot of shops around the country were like you know kids were getting on skates and doing what we were doing so they were like oh my gosh you know we heard there's these guys out in California skating ramps and so forth so can you bring them out you know so they would call and they would request us and Rollerblade, of course, would get the request, and they would send the dance team. So, yeah. so there was there was a lot of animosity there in the beginning um, with all of that, and eventually it got to a point where that that just couldn't happen anymore. So they would have to send us, and uh, and then suddenly it, the tide changed, and, and Rollerblade sort of put down the hammer and told the dance team, "You have to learn to skate ramps." So <laughs> it was like this prerequisite thing to like you know if you're going to keep your job. You, you need to learn to skate ramps. So all the dance team was out learning to skate ramps and so forth. And uh, and that, that didn't really go too far. I mean, it went a little ways, you know. Uh, uh, but 
but just things started to take off. And Morgan and Sean were working at the World Blade offices. Uh, that's the guys that put together Dare to Air. And uh, so they put together this video. You know, they were constantly filming, you know, all of us and especially Chris. And uh, they put the video together. And by that time, we actually had contracts with Rollerblade, the ones I had mentioned, you know, where we could do other things if we got permission. And they put together this tour in Japan. And I, at that time, you know, we had already, Jess and I had done that trip to, or we had all done the Sketchy Bastard tour in Australia and come back. And, and the ideas of the magazine had been planted. And so I was kind of on that and things were starting. And then came the Dare to Air tour and we requested from Rollerblade, can we, can we do this? And uh, they didn't answer back and we got a yes eventually. And, and then all of a sudden something changed up in corporate and it was like, no, we don't want them to go. We want to send the dance team, you know, uh, on something else, not on the tour, because, of course, Morgan and Sean put the tour together, and it was going to be a ramp tour. It wasn't going to be that, but there was something else they wanted to book. You know, it was some sort of strategic, like, this is what we want to introduce into Japan, and we don't want you guys to be there first. So it, it was something, you know, I'm not privy to the meetings they had and so forth, but all I know is that suddenly we were forbidden from going. Yeah. But in my mind, this was the single most important, pivotal event that had happened. I mean, we were doing a, a real tour in Japan, the very first, like, you know, just vert skating roots tour uh, that wasn't some, a, a corporate type thing or any type of association. It was it was grassroots. So for me, there was like, there just was no question, you know, like it was about promoting the industry it was it was about what we were doing so there was no question about us going so we had a meeting we got flown out to uh, Minnesota and we had a meeting with the uh, I can't remember everyone's names anymore but um, uh, <clears throat> they sent me and Jess and Pat <clears throat> excuse me Chris wasn't involved in this uh, portion he kind of was a superstar he was like kind of off doing his own thing and uh, so it was pretty much just me Jess and Pat yeah. And uh, so they threw, flew the three of us out there, and, and I remember those guys <laughs> telling me, they're like, don't speak for us, you know, like, don't speak for us, doing it. because they, they knew I was a troublemaker, and I was going to, like, cause a scene or, or whatever, and, um, you know, they didn't want to lose their jobs, which I could understand, but I don't know, I've, I've always been a little bit more of a daredevil gypsy when it comes to that, I don't really, I've never really had any value for money, so I, I didn't really care. And we got there, and they started saying, well, you know, you, you can't do this tour. And I said, well, it's in our contract that if this period of time goes by without any response, that it's a given, yes. And uh, Deb started, like, well, get the contracts and bring them out. And it was very combative. Like, there was a very serious vibe in there. And uh, it ended up being kind of a Deb pounding her fists on the table and yelling at me you are not in marketing and screaming at me and uh she got really angry because she had she had brought up the old contract not the one that we had like had the meeting and redone and and pulled out all the other things and, and that we had all signed so when she realized she had the wrong contract and when she realized that like they actually had no grounds to forbid us to go and they had no grounds to fire us for it then you know, when that was brought to her attention, that's when she started screaming at me and so forth. And, uh, yes, I ended up getting myself and Jess and Pat fired. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but it was important, you know. So, okay, there it was. We were fired. So that was it. And we went off on Dare to Air. And by the time we actually got out on the tour, I had the first issue of the magazine done. 
And uh, we took the first issue of the magazine there. <laughs> it's funny because it has in it no more cones because that's what they were doing over there at that time. Yeah. Uh, it was funny. And uh, it was a great tour. And just to meet all those guys. I mean, we're talking Machio, you know? Yeah. Uh, that's where the Machio comes from. Um, <laughs> Machio, Tetsuji. You know, it's funny. I've actually just gotten back in touch with some of those guys, which is really cool. But, um, yeah, got out there and did that tour. And uh, then I got myself banned from all the Dare to Air tours. To this day, I still actually don't know why that transpired. When we got back off the tour, I think, I don't know, I, I know Pat gave Morgan a lot of shit on the tour. Like, Angie's got t-shirts and magazine and, and you know, because, I don't know, Pat was just giving Morgan and those guys shit for not having, like, a Dare to Air shirt or something. I don't know. But um, more, uh, Sean actually wasn't on the tour, just Morgan. And when we got back home, Sean came to me and he was like, uh, said something and he's like, just just admit what you did. And I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? And to this day, I've, I've approached him so many times over the, over the next several years because they banned me. And uh, my teammates didn't stick up for me or anything. And it was like, okay, so the Dare to Air tours went on minus me. Um, and every time I would approach Sean, I would be like, uh, you know, Sean, please, you know, like, just tell me what it is that, like, you think that I did. And... To this day, I still have... No, he's like, you know what you did. <laughs> and to this day, it's like the biggest mystery of my life because I still don't know what the hell I did. I, I have like gone over it a million times in my mind and I'm and I the only thing I could ever come up with was uh, I met Yuki out there, you know, the uh, Yasutoka's dad. Yeah. And uh, I set up distribution for Daily Bread because, you know, we had the first issue out there and... Uh, so I set up distribution with him, and all I can imagine is somebody saw me talking to him, and the, and I think they they thought I was gonna like do a tour on my own or something, and ask them out, or I don't know what the hell. But anyway, bygones, bygones. But it still remains a mystery. So right. after the after that coming back, you know, then we were all on fire, you know, and things just you know, and actually street skating came around right before we went to Japan. Um, you know, Jess started putting little wheels from skateboards on his skates, and and Chris Edwards was sort of on the same tip and doing this and that, and and next thing you know, like people are grinding. So when we went to the tour in Japan, Tom Fry, you know, who we had met previously in Australia, um, he got we, we showed him what was going on in the grinding and so forth, and that's actually in the magazine, the first rails that he was doing. He just went nuts, man. I mean. He started like running around all over the park where we were and so forth, just looking for any contraption he could put together, and uh, just grinding went absolutely ape shit after that. And street skating was born, and we all know what, where that's gone. So, and it's kind of funny because you know, right about that time, I was so busy trying to make the magazine that I never had enough time to actually learn to street skate. <laughs> I am the worst street skater you've ever seen. It's funny. I mean, I've got. I've done some rails. I've definitely like nutted myself a few times, even without nuts. But uh, yeah, it sucks. It's like a big regret because now I, I don't have the strength yet really to like enjoy vert the way I would like to, and yet I'm like so crippled that uh, you know crippled on street skating. But uh, I have actually been skating a little bit, teaching my husband to skate too. But uh, nice. 
Yeah, took him out. It was pretty funny. It was like after he was like already bombing hills with me that I realized that I didn't even show him how to like buckle up his skates. <laughs> <laughs> he was fully skating the way I used to see like little kids skate, like no laces, no buckle. I'm like, oh my God, I could have broken your ankle, dude. Like he's just like, I strapped him up and he's all like, oh wow, <laughs> it's like way easier. I'm like, yeah, it's, it's better. When so what does, what, does, uh, what does skating look like for you now? Oh, man, like, uh, I'm looking up at a pair of skates in my closet right now. It's back to whatever, you know, like, I put on my skates and just roll. And I'm so happy to roll and just to, like, not have to, like, think about marketing or, or what's going on in the industry or, or, you know, like, I'm free of that mindset, you know, because I was the the pinnacle of it for so long you know i always had to be yeah. thinking about about uh too many things in the industry and not just what got me on skates you know not the days of like going out to marina valley skate park for like eight hours straight and just you and your skates and you know not not no industry bullshit to like tarnish anything so right i'm really happy to be there nice. that's yeah that's a really nice place to be yeah do you use, uh, like, aggressive skates, or do you use rec skates? I don't think I've ever put on a pair of rec skates. <laughs> oh, really? I don't even know how I would... I wouldn't be able to skate in them, I don't think. They would feel just alien. Yeah. Um, yeah, no. No, actually, um, I really love my Frankies. I still skate my Frankie Morales skates, and it's kind of... Rems, or...? No. Oh, gosh, yeah, I'm way out of date, aren't I? Rollerblades. <laughs> Rollerblades, okay. Which is really funny that my last pair of skates as an industry person ended up being rollerblades because I had not skated a pair of rollerblades since the time we got fired. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it was a, a long, weird history with rollerblades because for, forever after that incident, of course, they didn't advertise in the magazine because, you know, they were they wanted to, like, I don't know. They just did not want to accept that. I mean, we had Deb, yeah. you know, Deb pounding her fist. You're not in marketing, and then here I am with the magazine. So it took a long time, uh, and then finally, when they, when we finally came together, it was because they sent an ad in that said something like, "Putting an ad in this magazine is like being the skinny guy in gym class or something." I don't know. They said something, and it was like then it then it was like a handshake. It was like, oh, okay, all right we're on the same page now, but still I didn't skate their wow. skates for the longest time. And, uh, so how long I, did that, how, do, how long did that take for them to come around and start advertising? Uh, let's see. I started the magazine in 93 and I believe their first ad was in 98. Wow. I'm not sure if that was their first, I th I'm pretty sure. I mean, that's, that's around the, the time when they sent that ad. So yeah, actually. Yeah. And, uh, it's funny because I was always, I always had the single-minded vision of basically not destroying all the, the corporate companies, the big companies, but making sure that the industry leaders were, you know, it was always my goal to see a skater start a skate company, a skater start a store, a skater start um, a wheel company, you know, like a clothing yeah. company. I, I wanted skater-run and owned things, and so I knew that the others would have to die for that to happen. And I kind of knew that the others dying would sort of kill me, too. But it just, it's inevitable. It has to happen that way, you know? 
it's like with BMX or skateboarding or anything, it's like when when Tonka stops making skateboards and then like Tomietto is making skateboards, that's when you become an industry. Yeah. There has to be a skater in every facet of the picture for it to be an industry. Yeah. Like that such as it is. So yeah, that had to happen. Right. So last time we you were talking about like starting the magazine a little bit and we kind of left off in the beginning stages of the magazine. So tell me about how uh, when things started to kind of pick up a little bit. Hmm. Well, when that first issue hit the streets, I mean, you think about how many things were coming together all at the same time. It's almost weird to like try to say them, but you figure I had that first magazine with me in Japan on the Dare to Air tour. Yeah. But for that first magazine to happen, we'd already had the like dilemma here of the me and Pat, the box daily bread thing and like those guys like wanting to like put me out of out of the picture before it got started. You know, by that time Chris Mitchell had like started street skating, you know, he was involved with Pat. So it's like uh we're starting a magazine at the same time we've got this tour going on. By the time we get back, you know, it's like on the street and it's on the street here. Because I literally took the magazine like straight off the press pretty much to Japan. So then we come back and it's it's here as well. And, you know, it's just the phone calls are flying off, you know, because we've got like issues going out to Tim Daw and Tom Fry and all those guys in Australia and Joe Burlow over in England and, and Wally over in Hawaii. And, and we've, we're, we're sending it out everywhere, you know. Jess is selling it out of the back of the car and, and we're just getting the word out on the street. And uh, it's really funny because before we put that issue out, um, oh, and street skating is being born at the same time. I mean, there were just so many things happening in that year that it just was almost too much to take in. Yeah. But, um, yeah, and I think, uh, yep, and we had just had the the big competition, the NIST competition and so forth because, or was that right after? Now I'm getting all lost in myself here. But um, those were sort of, you know, coming to fruition, so there was just so much shit going on that it was insanity. So when I got back, um, trying to, I, I basically moved into this place called the, the ghetto, and we kind of like built it up a little bit. Like I said, it was like this like kind of meth <laughs> jungle. <laughs> there were just people everywhere, like in every cranny. They had like walls built in, like there was a door I'm trying to remember how they did this. Is like they cut something out so there was like a secret room where they would like blow glass pipes and stuff. It was nuts. Mm-hmm. But uh, we, me and my friend Paul, we had our little space up there, and Arlo would come down from LA, and Jess would come in, and like everybody would crash on the floor, and and we'd get the issue out. You know, I basically was just around the clock. You know, I I had the I just had a little board set up next to my bed. I had a about a eighty square foot little room that just was my bed. And a, and a bathtub and a piece of wood going across the wall and my computer. And that's where I spent 24-7, you know, just around the clock. Because at that time, and now this is really bizarre for some folks to wrap their head around, but the Internet did not exist. Yeah. It seems like it's been there our whole lives, but the Internet did not exist at that time. Oh. And I had the top-of-the-line computer that I had gotten, and it had 800 whole megabytes of uh, 
storage space. Wow. So nothing has changed in terms of how much, how fat photos are, especially high-resolution photos. So it took about 16 88-meg side quests stacked on the, on the desk for me to do the issue. And I would have to, like, you know, I could only have, like, maybe 12, 10 to 12 pages, if that, on the computer at any given time. So it was it was a lot of work to, like, put all that together. And, you know, of course, now we're trying to, like, figure out how to ship the magazine and, and figure out how to, like, do billing and accounting and all that stuff. So it's like my mind was just constant, you know, uh, because there's, number one, publishing is one of the hardest things there is to do as a business and it takes the most people and it has the most overhead and at that time it wasn't like desktop publishing is now where it's an established thing where there's books on how to desktop publish there was nothing it was like if you weren't in the Hearst family or Murdoch or something you just did not know how to do this shit and there was no one out there to tell you so it was a, a struggle to figure it all out but like there's there's just so many cogs in the wheel to make a magazine a print magazine that if you have a staff of like less than 10 people, you're a maniac. So I was basically a maniac. I, I wake up, get on the computer or get to work with daily bread. And that was my whole day. It turned out where you know people would bring me a coffee. Somebody would bring me something to eat. And, uh, that just became my, my life. I lived inside of that. So, but things were happening, you know, so we were able to, we were able to keep pushing that, and I just wanted to see bigger and better things happen for our industry. So, you know, there there was so much to be accomplished. There was no yeah. time to like kick back. For me, anyway, there was no time. For yeah. <laughs> so, how long did it take? Because you eventually got a real office, right? Well, right. Uh, let's see. I was in the ghetto from like ninety-three to. Maybe ninety-five. It was the ghetto, and then another apart. You know, whatever I was living, another uh, apartment, and then another apartment, and then finally in Laguna at about I think it was like maybe seventy-six, probably like ninety-five. No, yeah, ninety-four, ninety-nine, like the end of ninety-four, ninety-five. I got an office, yeah, a little office uh, in Laguna Beach, and uh, I got like. Uh, my boyfriend at the time, Kyle, was helping out, and his friend, and that was it. That was pretty much it, you know. <laughs> the three of you. Yeah, just kind of the three of us, and and Jess, you know, and Arlo. I mean, those guys were still carrying on being like pro skaters and so forth, yeah. and and doing their thing and living the life. So they were here and there, and in and out, and doing this and that, and that went on for a couple years. And uh, well, I, I actually got involved with the Warp Tour in '95, so. You know, right not long after that, I met, well, on the first Warped Tour, I met Johnny Donhelm, and uh, we actually started dating. Yeah, that, that always was the case, you know, whoever my boyfriend was at the time ended up being a Daily Bread employee, <laughs> and uh, Johnny was, was like, a, a total godsend, though, because he actually was a photographer and in the skateboarding industry and worked at Transworld, so he was able to oh, wow. bring a, a lot to the plate. Um, when he started helping me out and like helping out at the magazine and so forth, like he was able to to really help out with art direction and uh, just that whole thing. Because you know, you figure uh, I'm just one person and I'm trying to like put everything together. So having some actual qualified help was a godsend. Yeah, and probably probably helped us to stay 
afloat. And then, you know, of course, I moved everything to San Diego, which really upset those guys. But that was just, it was important that I needed to do that because in Laguna Beach, it's just very difficult. You know, it's not like you can go down the, the street to a Staples or something. It's a beach community with not a lot of resources and so forth. So as much as I loved it, San Diego was on the water, big scene, lots of skate parks and, and you know, a, a, a big city. So I had resources available to me that I didn't have there. So that's when I moved down here and, and then the crew kind of formed with, you know, like Bo and Corey and, and the whole SD crew that's still here today. Yeah. Is that where, you know, Keith Wilson and... <laughs> yep, Keith Wilson... Um, who is like so dear to me? I love Keith and Bo and Corey. Uh, the those three. Corey were... Miller. No, Corey, Corey Casey. Corey Casey. Yeah. Okay. Corey Casey. Yep. Yeah. Corey Casey, Keith, and Bo. And uh, actually, they didn't come around until about a year and a half after I moved to. I moved in '95 to San Diego, and I had an office by the train tracks, uh, and it was just me, Johnny. Uh, his drummer from his band, Miles, um, and uh, that, yeah, maybe the, I can't remember who else was there, but not many. And then I moved into a like a full-on like industrial park kind of spot, and was able to actually put a ramp in the office and uh, able to hire a couple more people. And it was basically people here in San Diego, friend of a friend that Johnny knew or someone, you know, it's like there was no, there really were no skaters that could be hired at that time or anyone qualified. We couldn't afford anyone qualified and there weren't any skaters that were passionate enough but knew anything. Uh, so we just kind of had flybys uh, as far as employees went, which was kind of difficult. We had a, it was either that or friend of a friend. So we had uh, guys like Mark Garris. Um, doing art direction, Barry Kelman, you know, these are all guys from bands. <laughs> uh, Barry Kelman, the drummer, uh, was doing ad sales, and uh, everybody was taking typing lessons in the office, and uh, a girl named Jenny uh, came to me uh, from Petco and turned out to be the single most important person uh, that has that is to be credited with a lot of uh, Daily Bread being around, and, and her, when she left, facilitated the demise because she was my right hand and it was whatever needed to be done. She came on first with Jethro and then when, when I had nobody to do something else, then she took that on and we had no somebody to do something else. She ended up doing all the accounting. So she ended up being the person who was with me learning to do the financials and, and how to actually like, cause financials for a magazine are, um, they're so crazy that they actually have conventions and seminars just for just for just for publishing accounting because it's that nuts. It's not like something that you can uh, just sit down with a, a regular accounting program and figure out because it's you figure when it comes to accounting you have to like um, you you have to only put on your books what you actually have put in the bank. So like say when you sell a subscription for $12, you can only actually put that in your accounts as each subscription is shipped, which could be over two years. And with mm -hmm. the with magazine newsstand, you might make, uh, they might request from you 30,000 magazines and then they don't pay you for 30,000 magazines. They pay you based on this little algorithm they've come up with on what they think you might sell. So like they'll pay you for like, you know, 2,000 and then 
three or four months later, they'll pay you another 15% of something else. You know, it's just all these crazy numbers that can take up to like 365 days or more to get paid for just one issue. And it just trickles in. So trying to figure out at any given time what you have, what you're going to need, and, you know, it, it's a, a nightmare. It was an ongoing nightmare. I actually hired a, an accounting company to come in, and they came in, and they were so baffled. They stayed for several weeks. I thought they were doing what we needed to be, what needed to be done. And when they left, I realized all they had done is just chicken scratch everywhere and do our taxes. So I ended up taking them to court, but the judge didn't understand the accounting. So he was like, well, they did the accounting. I'm like, no, they did our taxes. I still don't know what the hell. So it was a big, big, long journey to try to actually figure out the accounting and get that straight because I knew the day would come when it would be extremely vital that we knew where every dime was, where it was going, how it was, you know, and how to plan. Because when you when you get a distribution like we did and when you've got employees and you've got a whole industry depending on you, there's there's a lot at stake for the industry itself and you have to be able to like prepare and be be able to like go with the flow especially when the big companies start dropping out and so forth um, so it was really important and it was a long journey I don't know where I was going with that <laughs> I'm a little bit delirious I've been painting all day so I've got like fumes in my head so if I start wandering off into some random delirium just kind of pull me back oh it's so enjoyable I don't even want to. I don't even want to stop you. Oh, <laughs> well, this is fascinating. Uh, it's, it's such a different world. Like you said, there was no internet, and I mean, no, it's not. I mean, the magazine business obviously has changed a lot yeah. since since those days, and rollerblading has changed, and oh, the whole so world much. has changed so much. So, so, so much. It was like something like I think. When I started Daily Bread, it was the beginnings of a desktop publishing boom of, of people, just regular people being able to make magazines the same way now regular people can make a movie or make a, a music video, you know, like it was more, it suddenly became accessible. So I think there was some statistic I read that something like uh, um, 600,000 magazines started up and only like 60 <laughs> Six years later, only like 60 were still around, and we were one of those because 93% or something ridiculous of all magazines go out of business in the first year. Wow. It's a, it's a really hard business. Yeah. So uh, that was, I was pretty proud of that, yeah. But yeah. Uh, it, it is a lot of work, and there was something I was going to say about the Internet not being around back then. Oh, um that, yeah, there were so many things changing at that time, like also consolidation of magazines and newsstands. Like there was this corporatization happening in America overall where like all mom and pop printers were getting bought up by big printers and all little mom and pop newsstand type places were getting bought up by like big newsstand chains. You know, it used to be like if you were a guy that had like a, you know, your, your town newsstand, you decided what magazines came in and out. And if you wanted to be on the newsstand in, say, Tulsa, Oklahoma, you called Joe at Joe's newsstand and said, hey, we've got this magazine, we'd like to be on your newsstand, and you worked it out with him. Yeah. And all, the, all that changed at that same time, too, with desktop publishing, because suddenly there were so many magazines that the big guys were like, we're getting flooded out. 
you know? There's all these magazine choices for people. There's all these crazy magazines on everything, and nobody can see us on the newsstand. They were used to dominating, you know, the airports, the grocery checkout aisles, the, like, Barnes and Nobles. The, every magazine stand, newsstand you went to had the same 20 titles. Yeah. And so you were going to get one of them. And then suddenly there were, like, 300 titles. So they started, like, you know, the, the wheels started turning to, like, consolidate, grab everything up, piece it out. They started a, a tiered newsstand system where it was like, uh, you know, you had to be tier one. You had to sell this many magazines to be in these, to be in airports, for instance. You had to sell this many magazines to be on the checkout aisle of the grocery store. You had to be tier two or above. It was bizarre. So we were struggling with that constantly, you know, like trying to like just wheel and deal and make sure we got in there. got everywhere, you know, for, for rollerbladers to be able to like grab a magazine anywhere. Yeah. So we were always fighting that. And, uh, and then when the internet hit, you know, like I knew when in 93 or 94, rather, I remember going to the Senate offices to set them up with this newfangled thing, you know, cause I've always been a geek. So I was computer admin for the industry as well. So I was like going around and setting up everybody's offices with email and, uh, internet. And I tried to build, I wanted to build a website in 1994. I set out what I wanted and I didn't realize it was YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> and I was a little early, uh, so it's like I didn't know how to what was involved in in building something on the internet, a web page or something. By the time people started having web pages, I knew what I wanted, and uh, I knew we needed it because I knew that the you know things would change. But I just could not, for the life of me, ever find anyone to like rely on for that. You know, I. I paid people, I like hired people and it would just be a fiasco of them like sitting there and on chat forums and stuff and nothing would ever get done. I mean, we had I had so many grandiose ideas and I knew at, at a certain point at like uh around 2003, you know, how long had I been trying to get a, the the websites uh online by that time, a long time it was a severe frustration for me, but like by that time uh the industry was changing so much to the point where you know, with the internet advertising being so cheap and print advertising being so expensive because of the, the overhead involved, there was a real push toward internet advertising. Advertisers started wanting cheat, you know, like they just weren't willing to, to pay that anymore. Yeah. So I, I knew that the time was going to come and, and you could get the information right away on the internet. So I knew the days of print were numbered. And so then it became really vital about getting the getting you know I wanted to be able to transition daily bread to online eventually because I knew it would it would have to happen yeah and uh, just change up the whole way we did everything you know because daily bread served a purpose and if it didn't serve a purpose and it wasn't serving a purpose then I had no purpose because I didn't do it to make a living I didn't do it to like be a publisher I had no desire to learn accounting and shipping and publishing you know I'd much rather just be a skater and be out skating and traveling and so forth. So if I didn't, if Daily Bread didn't have a purpose, then it didn't need to be there. Yeah. You know, it served a purpose before the internet because it was the only way we could get the information. But once yeah. the internet uh. came out, whoa, you know, big difference. So, you know, I knew that if we didn't roll with the times and if we didn't change, then we wouldn't be able to survive. And uh, so that became really vital for me. And again, it was never pulled off. So you can't imagine what I do now. Do you know what I do these days? No. What do you do? I am a database web developer. I do programming. Oh, nice. 
uh, well, after like oh, what ten frustrating years of like not being able to like, you know, it was the only thing at Daily Bread I couldn't do myself. I could shoot a photo, I can write, I could, you know, I was did the publishing, I did the shipping, I did the art direction, and everything, everything I could do. So if someone failed, I could pull it off. Yeah. But with the internet, there was no time for me to learn how to program and so forth. So if, if I couldn't rely on the person I'd hired, and there were very, very few people over the years at Daily Bread that could be relied upon or who actually had any idea or qualifications about what they were doing. Um, uh, if what, what, what the hell was I saying? Oh, well, that was just the one thing that I couldn't do. So, you know, when it came to that, it just was a, a massive failure. No matter which direction I turned, I just could not get that to happen. So, yeah, with all that pent-up frustration, I taught myself. And uh, that's I'm the biggest geek on earth now. Wow. <laughs> I thought I was a big geek already because I did all the computer administration and, and so forth. But uh, now I'm, I've really taken it to a whole nother level. Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> I need to get out from behind the computer. I really do. <laughs> it's not going to happen, though. No, embrace it. Yeah. So actually, that's that's pretty much. There was a perfect storm. You know, we went up where the industry was thriving uh, with everything on board. I think the pinnacle times were maybe '98 to. Maybe the end of 97, 98, 99, 2000, 2001, 2002 started to look bleak. You know, things were starting to, like, the Internet had come in. The Internet was picking up, so forth. Things started to chill. We were getting bigger. Uh, and as I had predicted to Rollerblade, there would come a time when all these recreational skaters would throw their skates to the back, and we would still be there. And uh, that, sure enough, was happening. So their sales were declining in all those areas and so forth. And, uh, you know, they weren't really in the ballgame for the passion of it. They were in it to make money. And if they weren't making money, then they were going to can the skates. So it was right about all around the same time that uh, the big companies started dropping out, um, not running ads anymore, not having a team. And th that was right right happening about a year after I like was really going fanatical about like the accounting has got to be straight you know tough times are coming we've got to be able to like figure this out and blah blah and uh, by 2004 2005 hmm four or five pretty sure it was five I uh, my lease was up at the office I was in I was in this like enormous office which I got a lot of shit for downtown San Diego. Um, what can I say? I'm the daughter of a dumpster diver, which makes me a dumpster diver, and I'm a haggler, I'm a barterer, I'm a, I'm a you know, I'll battle it out, and I, I managed to find great shit at really cheap prices, which just really freaks people out, because they think I'm spending a lot of money, and I'm not. So I had this, like, um, how many square foot were we? Like, 8,000 square feet? It was huge, the office down here in San Diego and downtown. I had a full ramp in the office, um, big ramp. We had so much space, we didn't even know what to do with it. But uh, I was paying such cheap rent that they wanted me the hell out of there. So when my lease was up, I was gone. They were like, you are gone. And uh, so I had to find another office, obviously way smaller, because uh, you can only pull off a miracle like that a couple of times. 
and uh, we were consolidating down. Things were changing. I was my goal at that time. You know, I'd gone through like not having anyone to help, and then being able to have people to help, but not qualified people. So it's like you know having twenty one employees, and five of them are watching videos in the game room. And the other ones are like instant messaging, and I'm in my office too busy actually working to like manage everyone. So uh, yeah, that was I was a I was a really shitty boss because I, number one I hated firing people. I wouldn't fire people, so the bad seeds would just like grow and they like, become an army of just shit. Yeah. And so there was a lot of like there was a lot of shit, and there was a lot of me like playing the victim because I actually felt like one and was, where it was always like me complaining about how crappy someone had behaved or this or that, because it was my own fault. I like let this shit build up, you know, like yeah. I let people get away with stuff. I let Marcelo go off to New York and kept paying him for months. I, I signed him up on my, uh, you know, Marcelo's going to hate me for saying this, but, uh, you know, like I put him on my, um, my cell phone contract, you know, and like, that's the kind of shit I did. I give everybody cell phones and like, uh, they're not paying their bills and nobody's like living up to what they're supposed to be doing. And, and so daily bread suffered for that, you know, and that's my fault because if, if looking back, if I had been someone who was a business person and not just a skater, you know, everyone was family to me. Yeah. <clears throat> but by that time, the perception of me had changed. I was Angie, the boss, this, you know, I was no longer Angie, the skater with my friends making a magazine. Yeah. And it, it took me a while to clue in to the fact that I was the big bad man, you know, like even though I'm not a man, I was like that person that people left and talked shit about. And uh, so I didn't like that place. I didn't like being in that place. I didn't like the drama. I didn't like uh, people feeling like I had something that, that they needed or wanted. So they were going to like kiss up to me to get it and then put a knife in my back. You know, it was like everyone at that, it came to a point where it felt like everyone was out to get something from Daily Bread and nobody was looking at what Daily Bread brought to the industry and what they could do to make Daily Bread better. It was just, just leechy, sucky things, just everything coming off and nobody putting in. So it was getting, it was getting really tough right about then because Daily Bread was kind of the biggest uh, game in town, you know, it was like yeah. that's where everybody wanted to be involved with or something. So, whatever we had, somebody wanted to take. Yeah. So I just kept on, you know, like I, I put the Warp Tour thing, you know, that was big for me. I wanted to see our industry get on board with the Warp Tour, where it was a fresh new thing that I actually was part creator in. Uh, you know, an inline skater was part creator in it, but I could not pull. Our industry away from the X Games, away from the MTVs, away from the corporate, the commercial, the everything, you know, to actually say, hey, this is something grassroots that if we get involved on the ground floor, we own. It belongs to us. So, yeah. you know, the only people I could ever get involved were like Kryptonics would always like get involved. Roses. Roses was a godsend. They would always get involved with the things that they should be getting involved with, but they couldn't do it alone. So they were the only ones out there on the Warp Tour, and it, you know, two years into it, Vans came into the picture, signed on, and it became a skateboarding tour. You know, soon after that, I quit because I was just like, screw this, you know, like, I'm not going to be out here with this Sonia lady that was uh, handling things for Vans, and uh, things were pretty chaotic anyway. So it was like time for me to go, and I was really frustrated that our industry let that opportunity go. But uh, that was just another thing, you know, like I was always pushing the industry to like do things it wasn't ready to do yet. 
you know, like ASR, you know, taking, getting us back into ASR and staking our place in the action sports retailer show, the trade show here, that was like pulling teeth. And, uh, you know, then Shane Coburn picked up after myself and, and tried to carry that torch too. And like, we tried to like get our industry there. And, uh, you know, I negotiated deals with them to have like a, a row of just rollerblading and in a good spot in the floor and just to have core companies there, you know, looking after our image, looking after what we were, we were associated with and everything. But uh, just again, couldn't get people who weren't passionate about building the industry, who were just looking at their bottom line. We couldn't get those people to invest and to like take part the way that they should. So we looked little, we were little, and eventually that just kind of petered out as well. Um, but you know, all these things, they needed to happen. You know, I, I was always trying to push them ahead of their time, but you know, you can't, you just can't do it. They just have to happen. The nature has to take its course. Yeah. So, um, I was going to tell you something about that. No, I can't remember. Whoa. But you, yeah. Daily Bread at one point was really big. Like we, I grew up in a small town and we, there was a few places that we could get daily bread in Kamloops and we would mm -hmm. travel around to really small towns and mm -hmm. we would find daily bread in the gas stations and things like that oh yeah it was I, it was really out there I kicked some ass man yeah yeah you really did <laughs> that took that took bribery back then uh like I said with the consolidation of the news chains and so forth to get a distributor because all those little mom and pop newsstands got bought up so to get to them, you had to get to the distributor. And to get to the distributor, they had to look at you as someone promising that could be a top-tier a top -tier thing. And it was a game like trying to get your music on the radio used to be. Like, I don't remember what the word is they use for that, but it's a big game of, like, who you know, who you... So I actually had to put aside money to pay a guy whose only job it was was to get me into the, the distributor. Like, that's his only wow. job. He was our newsstand consultant. And without him, they would not deal with us. So it's basically like bribery. You had to, like, bribe your way in. So we did. We got ourselves in there, and um, we figured out how to ship cheap. We, we, I did all the – I'm kind of anal when it comes to book work and paperwork and keeping things. So, you know, it took like five years or something to finally get approved for our periodical license and keeping tabs on all that the whole time. And then finally we were approved for it. And so we, you know, we had, it takes like six different licenses for your shipping and you have to like count ad pages to editorial and it determines your rate for, it's crazy complex, lame stuff that is no fun at all. But um, we did, we got into the newsstands like that and we were really... We were really out there. I mean, that was uh, that was our job. That was our goal: get skating out. Yeah. And um, it's uh, it was sad to me actually when things started to really, really die down, where advertising was just almost null. And uh, you know, at, when I had to say, you know, look, we were going to have to go monthly, and we're going to have to thin the pages out. Uh, that was tough because, you know, I didn't want to do that. But when you've got it's a, an accounting thing when you've got yeah. payroll every month to pay all the people who are like actually, you know, my art guy, my editorial guy, photo, you know, blah, blah, all the aspects that go into it, all the, all those wheels that make it turn. The, everybody get, needs to get paid monthly. Yeah. 
and your rent is due monthly and all your bills are due monthly so if you've if you're trying to like match apples and apples for how much is coming in and how much is going out you know if we barely have any advertising dollars we can't cover a month and a half of salary we have to take that month to month so it was like a very strategic thing that Jenny and I had put together with the accounting and so forth we had finally learned what we needed to know and as of 2005, January 2005, we were supposed to implement this new accounting system that we had spent years working on. The budgets were all in place. I was taking the magazine monthly. We had negotiated a monthly print uh, thing with our printer. We it, Everything was in place. I had all the I's dotted and all the T's lined up to like survive the storm. And then just the shit hit the fan. First, Jenny, uh, she'd always wanted to work for her dad and, and her dad's secretary left and offered her the job and that was just something she had always dreamed of doing so I was losing Jenny um, and uh, everyone was angry with me for making the magazine thinner and monthly no one could understand it so I had my own employees going against me with uh, the companies and so forth and, and just sort of an upheaval over that because no one understood why that needed to be done and uh, no matter how much I tried to explain it, I mean, it had taken me 10 years to understand accounting and so forth. They weren't going to understand it in 10 minutes, uh, and they really had no interest in <laughs> understanding it. So, uh, you know, everything was in place, and then just literally the perfect storm. So the, the woman who came in um, to replace Jenny turned out to be a con artist, crackhead, crazy woman who... <laughs> constantly like she just undermined everything she was telling everyone like lies that about me so that she would like not look like the maniac that she was I didn't find out about any of this stuff until down the road but just she did some serious damage I found like uh, after she'd been there for a little while I started to clue into it when I found six months worth of mail shoved in different spots in her office like just just shoved in there like hiding not open like mail to you mail to the magazine to the magazine yeah just all the mail that had come in just like kind of shoved in weird places and I'm, I'm not joking when Whoa. i say meth you know and she had this one long pinky nail and uh a purple streak <laughs> purple streak in her hair and like i just thought she was a cool old lady but it turns out she really was like just some whacked out woman um oh no yeah, and so this accounting, we hired her because she supposedly knew accounting and knew this program. And so I kept saying, okay, like, here's what we've put together. This is what we need to implement. And she kept saying that she was doing it. But then I would look in there, and it was like Charles Manson. It was, like, all over the place. And uh, so I kept telling the guys, we're going to have this budget and blah, blah, blah. And I'd go to have the meeting, and then it wouldn't be done. So it was like, ah. And then uh, our printer, which, you know, when you're paying... $30,000 to print an issue or $35,000 to print an issue because we is that, like is that how much it costs around 38 35 $38,000 per issue wow yeah okay and about you know 28,000 in payroll so uh, you know that's just payroll and print that's nothing else that's not distribution yeah. shipping rent the whole bit so um, yeah uh, what was I saying oh when you're paying that much out to print you really can't screw around so I had uh, actually set it up um, we'd been with the same printer for years and I had set it up as like you know okay we're gonna be going monthly so we're gonna need to get billed every 
you know, 45 every 60 days because we're going to be turning this out. So we had our terms negotiated. Everything was set in stone. And then our rep, who had been our rep for like 10 years, left the company. We printed that first issue. And here's where the ball started. Really, the, the cheese just slid way off the cracker. Um, we went to print, printed that issue. It came back. Uh, they billed us immediately. And then we printed the next issue, and they billed that. So now we had two issues, and they were showing them as owing right then. They weren't owing because our terms had changed, but our rep had left. So I'm, like, putting out this fire, and they're refusing to print the next issue until these are paid for. Well, we can't pay for these until the advertising dollars come in for the, you know, it's not like we have a huge savings. We were, like, always, and throughout the history of Daily Bread, it was always, like, in and out. You know, there was no savings. It was just in and out. Yeah. Everything that came in went out, back out to the industry. So, you know, that was like one fire I'm trying to put out over here. At the same time, I find out that Rusty, my distribution guy, um, unbeknownst to me, we we had always gotten billed. The contract I negotiated with our our subscribe our subscription house, the people who send out mail out our our subscriptions and who have the list of all our subscribers and so forth. Uh, was to be we were we were supposed to be um, billed per issue, but when we started going monthly or when we set out to go monthly, apparently Rusty had talked to them and set it up and approved us being billed monthly, not per issue. So, mm-hmm. so when an issue was late, they billed us anyway, and that's fifteen thousand dollars. So now we've got the printer over here not printing because they've got our terms wrong and it's such a huge company that they can't figure it out and the reps keep leaving. They're doing something in-house. But we're on a deadline in the meantime and wages are piling up. So that's not printing. I'm getting double billed for an issue that hasn't even been, like no issue was released and I got a bill for $15,000. And so I, I find out that that's happening. And then I find out that Deb never invoiced for the last issue, like the issue before that, when she first came on, she never invoiced for an entire issues of advertising. So I'm trying to figure out why we can't pay the bills, and I'm finding out that, well, that's because no no bills were sent out, no invoices were sent out, no calls were made. You know that That's why I say Jenny was one of the most important people at Daily Bread, if not the most important person. Everyone out there in the industry that was in the industry, they knew Jenny because they'd get the call. Yeah. <laughs> You know, your ad doll, your ads are due, your ads are due. You know, we've got to go to print. And she made sure that shit happened like clockwork. She was the person you could rely on. You know, she was in the office at 8 o'clock. You know, that's not me. I'm like, you know, I can't wake up before 10. I'm, I'm like work till 3, up, you know, that person. So she was the other half. She she really made that shit happen. And so Deb had an invoice for, an I found, you know, an entire issue. So here we were budgeted down to the dime. And just one of those things would be a lot to overcome, but it was like one after the other after another, and then you know again with the accounting program not being set up, so we couldn't actually see. It was like being with blindfolded, and uh, and then disruption in the office. You know, Deb's telling everyone that like uh, that that this and that is my fault, and I'm actually at that point. I had sold a house. It's a really kind of a weird story, but I had a loft downtown here in San Diego, and they brought in the ballpark and uh, didn't know this existed, but they had this thing called eminent domain, and uh, when they wanted to build the ballpark, they had to get everybody out and tear down the buildings 
So they actually pay the difference in your rent for four years. So I told them, I negotiated with them, I'm like, you know, um, don't do that. Just give me one check for four years difference in the rent and so forth. So I took that check that they gave me and I bought a house um, or put it down on a house and uh, in, a, in an area that was cheap but that I thought would like come up. And then it did come up, ended up you know, selling the house and actually had the first money I'd ever had in my life. Like it was mine. I had a, a, like $100,000. It was mine. And it was the most money I'd ever seen in my life. You know, I grew up super poor. I'm talking like ironed bread and potato chip sandwiches if uh, on a good day, like really poor. You know what I bought with my first paycheck that I ever earned as a pers- as a as a 15-year-old working girl? Uh, I bought a fan, an, os- an oscillating fan. I'd wanted one for years. We're talking a $15 fan, dude, like. That was like my lifelong dream to own a fan. So, you know, that that was a lot for me. And with Daily Bread, I never looked at that as something that was for me to make money. It was just, it was it was a project for the industry. So this was really special to me. It was like, wow, you know, like if my whole world fell apart or whatever, like I actually have something, you know, that, that could rescue me or save me. Um, you know, I never had the parents to call for a helping hand or if, if I got in trouble, you know, if I got in trouble, I was homeless. So that was just really cool. So that was put away. And here I was faced with all of these fires. And the only thing that was going to save us was if I took this and I used it for payroll and print. All of it. <laughs> all of it. So, you know, that was a big deal. That was weighing on me. And I, like, went to this meeting. Um, I believe it was at Razor's Warehouse. And we were all around the table, and I remember saying to everyone there, you know, uh, Scott Walker was there, Kato, you know, like all the industry owners and so forth, and Andy from Razors, and and I said to them, I'm like, you know, Daily Bread serves an extremely important role and purpose in our industry, and we are in trouble, you know, like if you guys don't support the magazine and don't advertise, then we can't survive. And I remember, like it was yesterday, Scott Walker saying, well, you know, if Daily Bread goes under, another magazine will just start up. (laughs) And that was after, like, what, you know, 12 years of, like, building this up. And I'm like, you don't understand how, what Daily Bread is, what it's become, how much work it took to get it there. This isn't some rag. Like you said, you would go to a little tiny town, you'd find Daily Bread. Yeah. We were we were doing our job for the industry in a yeah. big way, and uh, so you know I felt like I was like casting pearl before swine, as my mom put it, because uh, you know here I was trying to explain, and this, and this is not an isolated incident, but here I was trying to explain, you know, like uh, how important it was and how difficult it was to replace that and what it did for the industry. You know, was, I'm like, you're cutting your own nose to spite your face. You're looking at your bottom line right now, but you're not looking at it a week from now, a month from now. You're, you're not looking at what it takes to make an industry thrive and survive. And we have something, we have the most established thing we have as an industry is daily bread. Yeah. And you're just off the cuff, oh, well, if it goes. So that was tough. I remember sitting out in the parking lot, and I was actually talking to Chris Garrett, and uh, that was really funny because Chris was always on my shit list of uh you have no idea there was there were companies i'll say it fr um companies you probably knew and loved that never paid a dime for their advertising <laughs> and they uh p 
people knew, you know, that I was passionate and that I wanted skater-owned companies to survive and that I wanted to help any way I could and that I would do whatever it took. Yeah, whether they kind of took advantage of that. Oh, hugely. I mean, I, to me, the, everything was my, everyone was my family. You know, we were all in it together. Yeah. And uh, I had never imagined that anyone would, would do that, but they did to the tune of probably, I, I'd say, at least $160,000. <sighs> you know, like, easily, easily. Daily Bread supported so many of the companies in the industry over the years um, just because, you know, they just never would pay their advertising. And uh, without them, you know, to me, it was like, okay, this isn't a business to me. So it's important for the industry that they be in the magazine. Yeah. It's important for the kids. It's important for the skaters. It's important for everyone that this industry exist but I kind of created a little bit of a bubble of uh, something that wasn't reality by just continuing to just bust ass and cover it all um, and it like I said I was trying to create a reality that didn't exist and, and I, it was a little ahead of its time because it has to happen naturally you know everyone was we're talking like a lot of companies were maybe like you know 21 year olds running a company yeah. That, uh, don't don't you know? Like our industry had not matured in terms of like there being business savvy skaters. There yeah. there were business savvy people, but actually they, the business savvy people weren't even all that savvy. But uh, you know, skaters just had not come of age as far as knowing how to start or run a company or anything. You know, and we just weren't there yet. So, um, where was I? Lost myself again. <laughs> These companies that weren't paying you. Oh, so like, yeah, I was sitting out in the parking lot with uh, Chris Chris Garrett because I would get really mad because I would be like, you know, Christmas Eve, I'm sitting there waiting on a deadline and I'm trying to get a hold of somebody to get their ad in and, and I'd be, I'd, you know, finally reach them and they're at the bar <laughs> having a good time. I'm like, you know, we're, we're sitting here or uh, um, with the, the payment thing, I'd go out on a tour and I wouldn't be able to afford a hotel room for myself or employees of Daily Bread. You know, we'd just be, would be crashing on somebody's floor and the, we'd end up crashing on the floor of one of our advertisers who bought a penthouse suite but wasn't paying their bills. It was really fucking pissed me off so many times. <laughs> I'd be like, what the hell, dude? Like, that happened with Garrett one time because... I ended up, he, he was nice enough to let me humbly stay on his floor, hasn't paid for an ad in like a year and a half, and yeah. uh, he's got his new camera, and he's got this like, you know, fancy watch, and he's talking about this shopping spree just went on, and I'm just thinking, dude, if you would just pay your ad, I could actually get a room for me and the guys, you know, like, we could, <laughs> wow. uh, yeah, I'd get really mad about stuff like that, but that happened a lot, I mean, that's that's going to happen, you know, like, people are naive, everybody wants to to skate and like you didn't there wasn't there wasn't a whole lot of the the struggle like there is now you know you were dealing with people who who got in and it was a good time and maybe they, a lot of them were like paid skaters you know paid to be skaters and they were used to a certain way of of having things they weren't going to yeah. be like working 24 7 nose to the grindstone because times were tough they were going to take whatever they could at the time. Bunch of spoiled brats. <laughs> yeah, they were spoiled brats back then. So anyway, I'm sitting out there in the parking lot talking to him, trying to go, you know, like, this is the position I'm in, you know, like, I need to I need to make a decision, you know, like, am I going to take this only money that I've ever had that's personal money that's not anything to do with the industry or anything and 
and and do this or and he told me he's like just just get out you know don't do that like well but of course I did because that's you know that's just oh that's me that's what's always been you know like that's that's what I that was my passion was to, was to, to do that and I just you know I made a promise issue one that I would never walk away yeah so you invested all of that money into Daily yep. Red. Yep. I used it all to pay everybody. And uh, it's really funny because that's one of the things Deb did. She actually told the guys that I never did that, which was which was kind of really shitty. I didn't find out about that till afterwards. So here we are, like, mid-2005. Shit has really hit the fan. We are, like, struggling big time. I'm putting out fires left and right. I'm having to switch printers because... We can't wait anymore for them to, like, figure shit out, and uh, we need to get to print. And in the meantime, with Deb and her, like, bad-mouthing around the office and, and so forth, like, I've got, you know, Justin and uh, Shooty and Peel at that time. They're all young and fairly naive, and they don't understand the complexities of everything. So they get into the mindset of, like, oh, well, we're not going to make our deadlines. And then Peel's like, oh, I'm going to go on vacation. I'm going to go to England. And I'm like, you don't understand. It's like when you're trying to drive and you've got the, the wheel and you've got the windshield wipers and you've got the gas pedal and you've got the gear shifter and you're all ready to go and you've got everything. And then the, the gears don't go in, so the brakes just go, well, if the gears aren't going to go in, then I'm not going to bother to brake. So it's like this machine, and I can't get everyone to understand. It's like putting, it's like putting fish in a barrel or what do they call it, snakes in a barrel? So it's like I finally get these fires put out, <clears throat> and then you guys are going on vacation. You're not going to make your deadline because you're saying we're not going to make print anyway. Come on, you know, like we've got to we've got to all pull together anyway to make shit happen. Yeah. So th- then there was that, and of course them going on vacation, not going to go to print. Payrolls adding up again. You know, the time clock just keeps ticking to the point where by mid 2005, I was like, you know, it's, it's drastic. I've I've had to cut newsstand, which sucked big time, um, because that was our goal was to get newsstand out. I was actually having to turn down newsstand. I was have to we could not print that many magazines as were being demanded, yeah. um, which is the complete antithesis of why we existed. So it was really crappy. So we're like having to cut magazines. I had to like um, sublease the building we were in and get somebody else in there. I had to go look for a house. I fired Deb. That took long enough. Um, you know, I eventually got that out. And, and so I was like, all at the same time, still putting out those fires, trying to find a house to move back into that could actually have the office and I could have roommates, um, trying to figure out what kind of psychotic madness had been going on in our accounting system for the past year and uh, get all that sorted out and deal with the dissension in the office because by that time we'd like had two late paychecks. We're talking 12 years Daily Bread never paid a paycheck late. Our contributors, yes, because that we had issues with that there when time started getting tough, that was those were the first guys to get hit. Um, but that was also due to the fact that we had like four in-house photographers and yet all the ma- the photos in the magazine were being put in by contributors. So that was some management issues that I should have taken care of. But, uh, you know, never, never a late paycheck. And we had supported so many people in the industry and so forth and always pulled it off. And then here we were, you know, times were really hard and all these fires or whatever. So paychecks were late. And that was really hard for me 
you know, um, to have paychecks be like a, a week late was, was super tough and very disappointing, you know, like, um, kind of hard to swallow. And it was not taken well, you know, it was kind of fuck you, Angie, for that. Yeah. And, um, again, because now I'm the big boss, I'm not, you know, the skater trying to like continue on with the passion of doing this, but, uh. So that was that was really kind of crappy, and paychecks were a couple days uh, or a week or so late. So, you know, let Deb go, and we're trying to get into this uh, house, subleased the office out. By this time, I'm dating my now husband, and uh, so Peel actually lets me know that he has taken a job, another job. So I'm losing my art director, same time, um, which was really sucked because we had waited like two years of having crappy art direction. We had waited to, for him to come back and helped him get his uh, green card and, and not our green card. Yeah. His visa and so forth for us citizenship and all that. And, and, uh, you know, I, I don't blame him at all, but, uh, that was really tough. So yeah, I was like, okay, all I can keep. And Rusty had been actually going to school. I didn't even know. He had only been coming in like four hours a day for the past two years, unbeknownst to me, because he'd been going to school and surfing in the morning. So he was actually getting another job too. Um, and that was like, okay, well, that's cool. You know, like, and I actually put him on unemployment, even though obviously he didn't qualify for unemployment, but I wanted to make sure he was taken care of. So I went ahead and, and did that. And I pared it down to just like me, Shooty, and Justin. Because yeah. Justin was handling my advertising and uh, editorial. And, uh, you know, it had taken a long-ass time to have anybody that was even a skater involved other than photography. So it was really, you know, like that was that was my team. And um, and then I think it was, I don't know if Wes contacted me or someone else told me, but Wes uh, wanted to come and join the party. And it's really ironic because Justin said to me, he's like, uh, I don't trust that guy. <laughs> <laughs> you shouldn't. You shouldn't hire him. I don't trust that guy. Because you know, it had been years before when Wes was a, um, a contributor to Daily Bread, and we wanted him. I wanted him to be our our full time, you know, like main photographer. Love Wes's photography. Yeah. But uh, he had bigger ambitions and wanted to go up to New York and be like a, a photographer in the big city and so forth. So he took that direction and turned down the job. And I guess that didn't pan out for him the way he wanted, but he like contacted me back and, and said, uh, I want the job. And of course, by then we'd already hired you know, Shooty and, and of course Keith was already there and so forth. So it was like, well, you know, we've already hired someone, but I really want you to like come work. Well, I'll try, you know, like I'm gonna try to like get you in here. And I guess, like, you know, he would, like, call me every single day, just getting more and more annoyed. And I'm like, dude, I'm, <laughs> like, trying as hard as I can. You know, I can't, I'm not going to just fire everyone. So um, he got really pissed off, and that's when he started Rejects Magazine. And uh, I think it's kind of obvious why it was called Rejects. I don't know if that was just a coincidence <laughs> or whatever. But, um, you know, that kind of turned into a, a bit of a heated battle only because, Again, I'm looking at the whole industry, and the industry is does not have enough money to support two magazines. Magazines cost a shitload of money to yeah. put out. And I'm like, okay, anything, if there's more than one magazine, it's deteriorating the overall goal of building an industry. Because yeah. advertising dollars are split. We can't, and, and the magazine at that point is our, 
it is our front. It's it's what says who we are. It's what sells us. Um, it's what helps the companies to like get products sold and the shops to be known and what have you know. Obviously, anyone who knows like anyone who's aware of how that sort of thing works now would understand that and say, yeah, you know, like if you're looking at the big picture, if your goal is to build an industry, then you want one magazine as big and badass as it can possibly be. You don't want two pamphlets. Yeah. So, you know, that was always my thing and everyone always took it personal and I was like, you know, it's not about I want to be the big publisher and you got to go away. It's about one. It's got to be one magazine. And those guys heard me say it over and over and over again. One magazine, one magazine, the industry can only support one magazine. Um, I beat it into everyone's head, you know. So, like, I guess Justin was like, you know, like, I don't, I don't trust him and blah, blah, blah. But I was like, you know what, no, screw it, you know. Like, bygones, bygones. Rejects, gone, and it's all water under the bridge. And I love Wes, and so, yeah, come on. So it was just going to be me, Wes, Justin, Shooty. And that was it. And I was in this house, and I found a house big enough, uh, got the thing subleased. I actually set up shop in Hirado's bedroom because I didn't have a place to live at the time. So I set up, he let me set up shop in his, his bedroom. I had some other personal issues that I won't go into and probably never will go into that were happening at the same time. But uh, uh, I was able to, like, just put my nose to the grindstone and, like, build, rebuild the accounting system to start January one. You know, I worked out what had happened with 2005. I figured everything out, and I was I, I was actually able to implement the accounting system. We needed to know what the hell was going on, and uh, I basically told those. And we met at the coffee shop a couple times, but there was like uh, several months between um, when this place that we were going to move into would be ready. So, Hirado, uh, thank God, was there for me. He helped me like pack up the whole office, all the computers, everything, get them into storage units, and he also helped me get them out. Um, I think Justin was working with uh, his friend on a video, and nobody was really <clears throat> doing much toward working for Daily Bread. But I still kept everybody on on payroll even then. Like we didn't yeah. we didn't even have an office, and I still had everybody on payroll. Uh, these guys, anyway. But um, <clears throat> I remember getting an email from Justin because he was pissed off because Chris Peel hadn't gotten his last check, and uh, I told him I'm like, you know, here's here's the way it works. Right now, we are in deep poop. We are in deep shit. Peel has a, a very good job he's gone to. He's well taken care of and so forth. In the overall big scheme of things, you guys are the most important people to get paid. And the bills and getting the magazine out, that's got to go first. Yeah. And when, when everything's back on track, then we take care of this. If Peel was homeless and couldn't afford to eat, different story. But that's not the case, you know. I I made sure everyone was taken care of. So, you know, as hard as that was, that was just a decision that had to be made, and it had to be that way. It's like there was no other options. So, um, again, more dissension and so forth. But uh, by the time we got into the house and into the office here, uh, I was right at the tail end of trying to like wrap up the accounting and so forth. And I guess I'm getting into the uh, story of how Daily Bread ended right now. I unintentionally somehow ended up here. But um, if do you want me to carry on with this? Yes, I do. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> well, here we are in this house. I've got a couple roommates. Um, 
and downstairs is this room that we can call the office and, and everyone's in and things are okay. It's weird. You know, it's weird for me because, you know, I've, I've been doing the magazine for a long time, you know, from starting in the bedroom and, and figuring out shipping on the floor and, and everything all the way up to like having employees in an office and, and being able to like have a, a video premiere for the industry and, and trade show and taking care of people, you know, like really helping to, to make an industry. And it's very difficult to like, to, to have to like move down notches, you know, oh, down and down and not be able to like support as many people or not be able to like live up to people's expectations. It's, it's, it's tough. So I'm um, kind of in that mind frame, but I'm like, you know, still got the bootstraps up, but I'm going to keep things going. So I'm right at the end of that uh, accounting program and so forth, and we're due to have this issue with the printer. We've already got all the ad ads in. Um, the magazine's done. Uh, a couple of things needed to be done, like not much at all, but we're, we're ready to go to the printer. And I'm right at the end of the accounting thing, and... I realized, I think it was Justin or Wes, one of them was like, well, you know, just put us on part-time. And I'm like, nah, man, I can't do that. You know, like, I can't expect you to, like, survive, like, only getting part-time hours, so forth. Um, so I just kind of dismissed that. But when I got down into the budgets and really was able to finally look at a projection of what would come in, you know, because our advertising dollars were down to, like, 20 grand an issue, at that time or something ridiculous um, from 80, <laughs> you know, eight, well, 80 coming in, 35 going out for print to print again, 15 going out for subscriptions, 10 going out for shipping, you know, the licenses, wages, rent, you know, so it was, it was all coming in, it was all going out, but that's what it took. So obviously when 80 went down to 20, you know, that's when we lose the office. That's when I lose half the employees. That's when, you know, all that stuff, the pages go down in the magazine, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we lose part of our distribution. So we're at about 20,000 right there. Yeah. And, uh, so I'm doing all the accounting and getting all that wrapped up and so forth. And I remember going, I think it was a tower bar or something. And, uh, Elliot coming up to me at some point earlier than this, when shit was really hitting the fan at the old office before we moved, into this house and he said something to me like Angie's like if you need help budgeting and I thought to myself really really like that's that's how incompetent everyone thinks I am that I actually managed to like make a magazine and and like run it successfully for like 12 years and and all of this is happening right now because I don't know how to budget <laughs> I was like Really, oh, I mean, I, I just, I, I felt like a little turd on the chair, like, oh my god, like, really, does that how, is that how everyone views me, is that incompetent and stupid, that, that, uh, you know, because, like I said, the accounting publishing is, like, super crazy gnarly, so I was like, this, and, and it's funny, because it kind of hit our industry first, you know, this recession that was on its way, and the death of print, which was on its way, it just kind of hit us first, it's ironic that I go to the, the airport now. I was, where was I? I had to go to San Francisco or something. And I, w I haven't been in an airport newsstand in probably 10 years for whatever reason. Yeah. And I looked in there and I was like, holy shit. Every magazine, we're talking big magazines, the, the top five, you know, the top, top tier magazines. They all look like Daily Bread in, in, in the pamphlet style. I mean, every, not, thin. not, 
hardly a one of them can even be perfect bound anymore because you have to have a certain number of pages to be perfect bound. That's when you have the like square back. Yeah. You're not just stapled together. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like they, they are, they are literally one page above what you have to have to like be perfect bound. They're so thin yeah. that the binding is actually too fat for the paint. And I was like, wow. You know, like I wonder if anyone who was fighting me on the magazine happened to go down. I wonder if any of them have like gone and seen what's happened to all of these other magazines. And do, do they now know that it wasn't just because I was incompetent there near the, the end, that it was because this was the death of a, a publishing medium that yeah. was happening, you know, wide scale. I guess they're trying to sell vanity fair for the third time. Nobody will buy it. I mean, like it's, it's print publishing just doesn't, it just cannot be, it can't be supported anymore. Yeah, well, it won't, yeah, it definitely won't be the same as it used to be. No, it can't It'll be, be just pamphlets, it'll be, well, even you know, the that, I mean, that are surviving slowly are, um, It's kind of a, a, kind of a funny thing that the magazines that are surviving now and that are big are the ones that used to be little. The city magazines, like the, the magazine that tells you what's going on in your city that tourists get or that you get to find out where to go to a bar or a club or so forth like that. Like those local, what's happening in your area. Those are like, the, those are thriving. They're fatter than they've ever been. Huh. And, and that's kind of weird that that's kind of how it's gone. Everything's sort of imploding on itself with, in terms of that, like everything's changing the way that we like get all of our information. But uh, anyway, so here we are, I'm at the office and I'll remember it like it's burned into my uh, back of my eyelids. I uh, finished up with the accounting stuff and realized budgetarily that it was impossible for me to catch up, to get Peel pay his last paycheck, to get some of the bills that were owed. You know, by that time I'd also realized that that Deb had just gone absolutely nuts, and I had the IRS after me after like twelve years of perfect record um for uh payroll taxes and all kinds of stuff so like i mean there were a lot of fires going on out there and so it's like there was a, a lot to be dealt with and you know i i wrote it all down you know the minimum payments that i could make i'd call all the vendors and so forth to figure out like exactly uh whatever i worked things out with the distributor you know basically threatened to sue them because they they were you know they had continued to bill us per month as opposed to per issue and uh so finally got all that worked out you know like the fires were subsiding it was getting like okay i've got i've got this under control but here i've come to this realization that uh i cannot catch up i'm going to keep being in this hole you know and after that many years of working almost around the clock it's tough to think of putting in more hours when you're already putting in so many that you just don't have a life so um you know, I was at my mental breaking point, I would say. Yeah. Really, really at a mental breaking point. And uh, when I realized that I had to put those guys, that I, that I could not go forward without putting them on part-time or something, you know, like basically at, at that point, I won't get ahead of myself. At that point, you know, we're all in this little room and I just start crying. I'm just, just losing it, you know, all of a sudden because I, and I'm like, we can't go on like this, you know, I've done everything that I can possibly do and we can't go on like this. Now to me, I'm breaking down because 
I've been publishing a magazine for 12, whatever, 13 years by that yeah. point. And this is very emotional. There's other personal stuff going on. And it's a very emotional thing to think, you know, and, and there's a lot of stress involved with being a publisher. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but when you're watching a movie or TV, whenever they show a publisher, they're always some manic, workaholic, lunatic of a person. Yeah. And that's basically what it does to you. Uh, because you're you're constantly on a deadline, and the deadline never goes away, and there's just a million things to be done to make that deadline. So, it's it's lunacy. But uh, you know, I I actually was just for the first time just going, you know, just kind of melting a little bit. And I had also just recently come to the realization that, like, it wasn't me, the skater, anymore with my skater friends. That really I was just this person that people would leave the office and talk shit about. And that, that you know, um, if I was homesick, I guess I, you know, I, there was a point of, uh, a little bit before that where, like, I had been really ill, like 105 degree temperature. And I remember the only calls that came in were to see if paychecks were going to be in. Like, no one came to see me. No one came to see if I was okay, etc. And I was like, you know, this this isn't my family. I don't actually have a family. I ignore my family to work. I'm always, always working. Yeah. And my friends had come over from Europe. And it was the first time that I had like actually just hung out in so long. And so I was also in that very fragile state of mind where I just realized that I just was at a breaking point of like, I needed to work harder, but I, you know, it's like, I, it was impossible for me to work harder because I was already working so hard. And I was really at a point where it was like, Whoa, I, I don't have a life and I don't have any friends and I don't have anything, you know, no, no, nobody cares about me. Yeah. <laughs> well, you had, you had put so much energy and so much into this thing that you've, you learned was, possibly just gonna die (sighs) yeah i mean it was just had to be extremely tough yeah really emotional it's been emotional since then i've been through many different uh mutations of going through weird shit that i just kind of put aside and kept working put aside and kept working um when this happened and i said that i said we can't go on like this and so forth and i was crying the response that for me what was going on was personal and it was about me not living up to expectations. It was about me not being able to, like, keep going with what I was doing. And it was just a, 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 a breakdown. Um, it was not a news conference or a press conference. It wasn't a public statement. It was just a person who worked really hard, really breaking down for a second there. You know, like, whoa, real, this is tough. I'm doing my best, but God damn it, I, I just i am losing it for a minute. And... Uh, I'll never forget that, like, Justin got pissed, and those guys got up and they left. He got pissed? Yeah, they all got pissed, and they all left. Like, pissed off at you? Yeah, they were just kind of like, shitty, get up, leave kind of vibe. I don't even know. I was, like, really having a hard time, so I was just like, whatever, you know, like, fuck, shit. And, um, yeah, because all they heard was, we can't go on like this. Yeah. And I don't even think they heard we can't go on like this. I think they heard I think in their in their minds and God knows what they were doing for their lunch break or whatever because I always let everyone do whatever and so they could have been really stoned for all I know but uh 
what they heard was I quit, which I don't ever say those words. Those words don't exist in my vocabulary at all. And I would think after all those years that I would deserve the respect of like, so what did you mean by that? Are you going to be okay? Or like, let's talk about this, you know, something. Yeah, maybe a hug. Yeah, a hug would have been great. (laughs) That would have been really great. But now you're going to make me cry. No. (laughs) So, yeah. So that's what they heard. And so I like moped around probably for like just feeling like I had let all those guys down because what I meant by we can't go on like this is because I was looking at their payroll and what it would cost to pay them and I couldn't. And that's what I meant because when you go that many years, you know, in my mind I always said if I have to, it'll go back to just me on the floor making the magazine like I did in the beginning. And that was always a promise that I thought that I would keep. But I didn't want to do that. I wanted my family around me. I thought they were family. I wanted to have, you know, my skater crew around me, like uh, making the magazine, you know, all for one, one for all. I just couldn't bear the idea of it being just me by myself again. And so that's what I meant by we can't go on like this. It it meant we can't go on the way that we're going on. It didn't mean we're not going to go on. It was just very painful for me to realize that, like, this was like a real, real, the end of the road turning point for how we did something had to change. Yeah. So uh, I thought, you know, for the last for the next few days or whatever, I was moping around and just depressed as hell, feeling like I'd let all those guys down, trying to like think of a solution that I could keep everybody paid and and working and and blah de blah and and then I was just like you know, like after four or five days of being really sad. Oh wait, I'm missing a part. I like called them all like the next day or something or a couple days later after moping around, I was like, figured out the budgets. I'm like, no, you know, like, they brought it up. I'll just put them on. I can do this if I put them on part-time. You know, I just didn't want to do that. So I re-figured out the budget and put together a whole little spreadsheet, one for each of those guys to look at. And I said, come in, we'll meet. Uh, I think I have a solution. And uh, so they came in, and I had come up with this solution to where if I had them on part-time for six months, it was just enough to get you know, to save enough payroll to be able to get back on track the way we needed to be so we weren't in the red and, like, constantly putting out fires, but we were actually functioning again. And uh, so I was, like, I tried presenting it to them, and the whole time they were just had these scowls on their face, and Justin kept going, are we going to get paid? Because, you know, by that time they were owed a check. Yeah. And uh, I'm like, you know, it was always my goal to get back to the beginning to just have a group of people, skaters, and share ownership of the magazine. And that's where I had been trying to go for a long time, was just to have partners instead of it being just me. I wanted partners, everyone with a vested interest in, you know, like a group publishing type thing where everyone had a role. But I'd been waiting a really long time for a qualified editor, a qualified photographer, a qualified ad person, you know, like to make a partnership. And uh, so that's kind of where I was going. But nobody at that point, nobody was interested because they were like, holy crap, this is like, you know, hard and and there's no money and blah, blah. So whatever. Um, I had basically told those guys, you know, as of when we move into this new place, we're going to be getting paid on a per issue basis until further notice. But even still, it was just a matter of like, you know, Justin was just looking at me and like, uh, when are we going to get our check? Are we going to get paid? And I'm like. I'm thinking to myself, I'm trying to, like, 
tell you the plan for like everything to be okay. And, and you just keep hammering me for if you're going to get a paycheck right now. Like it was really baffling to me at the time. I couldn't yeah. figure it out. And he ended up just like, I think they just like put down their papers and walked out. So then I was like, really like, what the fuck? You know, like I was, I was twisted around them because it was like my, I was the reason I was upset was because I cared about those guys and I cared about having my team and my family around me and so forth. And that just sort of like pulled the curtain back entirely. And I was like, what the fuck? You know, like, why am I moping around and sad and like so depressed and we can't go on like this and stuff, worried about not being able to like, you know, carry on having em employees and to me, which are with my family around me. You know, like, I, why am I so bummed out about this when this is the response? Like this, these guys don't care about keeping the magazine going. So they just want to make sure they're going to get that paycheck. Yeah. This isn't about a family and what we're doing and all that and so forth. So, I mean, I don't know. I was just really taken back and really kind of freaked out. And Justin seemed to be like the vo voice of everyone, all three guys. So um, they left. And I, and I, again, you know, a couple of days of just like, sort of freaking out in my head, trying to put all the pieces together, trying to come to terms with where we were at and what was going on and, and where was I going to take this next and how was I going to pull this off and like it, everything just seemed hopeless and impossible. You know, now I don't even have a staff at all yeah. and uh, and just like, what the hell? And and then one day I was just like, I just what I always do, I'll, I'll think about something and think about it until I've got an answer. And then suddenly it was like, well, what the hell, Angie? You know, like, what are you thinking? Okay, now you don't have any employees. Now you don't have any wages. Now you actually can make the magazine fat again. You can release it quarterly because you don't have to worry about making a monthly payroll. The internet is big now. There's tons of good skaters out there now. There's tons of skaters taking photos. There's good writers now. You know, things have changed. And I just started thinking to myself and I started getting really excited. And I was like, wow. That's what it took. It took the breakdown. It took the meltdown to like, to like transition over into this, what needed to happen. What was the next logical step, which was just me working in my house because desktop publishing had gotten to that point with the internet and being able to like send files back and forth. Yeah. Like everything was actually had grown up enough. It wasn't as hard as it was when I first started. I didn't have to go back to that. There were enough contributors out there. There were ways to send files and pictures. And there was a different type of media. And I could actually spend time learning to get the website and do that myself and put the print magazine out with the best of the cream of the crop photos that come in. And, and anyway, I just I had an, a, uh, an epiphany. And I got really excited. And I sat down with the budgets. And without the payroll there, I was like, yes, oh, my God. I can even pay contributors again really well because yeah. now I can like really pay contributors who are sending in great photos. I'll be paying for each photo instead of paying the salary of a photographer who's not shooting any photos. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and all the photos that are run are being run by contributors and they're not getting paid because the money to pay them is going to the photographers, on, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I got excited and I like planned it all out. And I was like, I'll put this issue to print. And with the advertising dollars for this issue, I'll be able to pay for print. I'll be able to pay everyone who's owed. I'll be able to pay the, the last checks. And I'll have just enough to get by to start building the next issue. 
and I'll make the announcement. You know, we're going to go quarterly. We're going to be a hundred pages again. It's going to be fucking awesome. Yeah. So I go to I go to the uh, I go to the office to kind of get busy. You know, like I'm going to get the files. I'm going to set everything in motion, and I go to get the files for the issue that's supposed to be released, and I can't find them. They're like nowhere to be found, and I'm like, what the hell? Like I don't understand. You know, like I always. I always trusted everyone to let them bring their own computers in and so forth and whatever. And so I start calling. I'm calling uh, Justin. I'm calling uh, Wes. I'm calling Shooty. You guys, where'd you leave the files? I can't find them. No one's calling me back. And I'm like, what the what the fuck? And finally, I start to get like you know things start clicking in my head, and I'm thinking, is this possible? Like, what's going on? Where are my files? And I start realizing that these guys have taken my files. Whoa. And so then I get threatening. I call, you know, the, the only person who gives into the threat is Shooty because, you know, I, I have always known, I mean, Shooty will always have a soft spot in my heart. I don't care what he does. I love the guy. And uh, I knew that he would have just gone along. He was angry and he just kind of got pushed in with the whole thing. But um, and he told me, he's like, we took the files. And uh, I was like, holy shit, you know, like, this is actually, I can't believe that this is happening. Like, after all these years and all this trust and me worrying about them, the and then it started to click why when I had the meeting um, about how to carry on and just going on part time, uh, you know, I had, it's like everything started to click and I'm like, you know, okay, Justin doesn't want to lose his his position in the industry. He doesn't want to lose that, and Wes doesn't either. And how easy is that? Like, how easy is that? Justin is my advertising guy. He's my editor. And Wes, you know, already put out another magazine without me, so I'm sure the two of them just went, well, fuck, if we just ditch Angie, we ditch all the responsibility, we ditch all the bills, we ditch everything. And we'll just yeah. be partners. And, and so I started looking at it, and I was like, oh, my God. Like, this is the perfect rock and roll swindle. This is the best thing ever. <laughs> I can't believe that they actually are going to they're gonna pull this off, and this is amazing. Yeah. So I'm, like, thinking, okay, i, I got to get a lawyer. Of course, I have no money. I even My mom is, like, the poorest person on earth, and she had given me, like, a, a present years before a $1,000 bond which for her that's like a, a shitload of money yeah. and uh i had even cashed that out to, to pay justin and wes and those guys i mean so i so i was down to like i had nothing zero to go and get a lawyer with and uh but i, ha I had to it was my only thing so i talked to this lawyer and he was supposed to like represent me and and uh do a restraining order and i was like yeah but you know you're gonna do a restraining order but then what you know like I found out that they are actually at the printer with my files. And uh, so the judge granted the restraining order, and uh, and they were ordered to give the files back. But again, just like years earlier with the judge who didn't know accounting and therefore didn't know I'd gotten totally screwed over, this judge didn't know publishing, and he didn't know what it meant to try to go to print in a small niche industry where apparently... Your entire industry is against you, and uh, because not one person—and I'm not even joking—I'm not exaggerating—not one person called me to say, "Angie, 
did you quit Daily Bread? Is Daily Bread gone? What's going on? Are you okay? Like, not one person. I, uh, I reached out to one person and one person only, and the response I got from that one person is the reason that I just completely walked away. Um, I actually called Gretchen, you know, James and Gretchen. I saw that's actually the, the interview that I watched on there. Yeah. Uh, because I really considered them brethren, you know, like, and we had just been out there to Alaska and stuff, and I just, you know, I wanted to, I was trying to figure out what was going on, you know, from the advertiser's perspective and from whatever, so I thought, you know, this is someone I can call, and the cold shoulder I got was so ice cold, so freezing, and I could have been reading more into it, because obviously I was in a pretty fragile state, but uh, it was so cold, and when I, re you know, the fact that no one had called me and so forth, I just felt just this enormous knife digging its way through my heart. And I was like, no one, no one gives a damn. You know, no one, wow. no, every, everyone's happy with this, that this is happening. Obviously, no one cares. No one's called. And I'm without anyone's support. I'm helpless to stop this. I can't afford a lawyer for a damages case, even though it's pretty open and shut. You know, um, when the law is, even if you hire someone, like say you, you asked me to go shoot a photo for you yeah. and I went, I went and shot that photo. Um, that photo is yours creatively. It's yours. Even if you didn't pay me, it's yours. So the way it works legally is like, if those guys were upset that they didn't get that last check yet, they should have taken me to court for that last check. They don't have any right to steal 13 years of my life. Yeah. You know? So, but they they thought that that was okay. And it would keep them in the industry. It would keep them in their positions. They get to, like, think of themselves as heroes um, who saved the day by coming up with another magazine. And apparently that's how they portrayed themselves to the advertisers was, uh, I don't actually know. Uh, the only person, like, several years later, I ended up making amends with Kato because, like, I love Kato. Always have. And I've always tried to like help and whatever, and I was more hurt by by him not contacting me probably than anyone. And we finally got closure on that and 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 came past that and so forth. And so he's the only person who's actually I, I've I've talked to in a Zeke Right after all this happened, I talked to a because I love a Zeke and uh, a Zeke was always there for me as well. But uh, um, when I talked to Kato, he said that they said that I went crazy and that I quit the magazine. And that That's they were what uh, Justin and Wes said. Apparently. Like, I don't know. That's what Kato um, and the few people, well, the, the only person, that's what Kato said. So, like, yeah. apparently, yeah, apparently they, they said that uh, that I had gone crazy and quit the magazine and so forth. So uh, nothing could be further than the truth because, number one, I've always been crazy. I can't go crazy. You can't go crazy if you're already crazy, right? This is true. Yeah, and uh, I never quit. I don't quit. Anyone who knows me knows I don't fucking quit. So, um, yeah, that was that was kind of mind-boggling, to say the least. But, uh, yeah, there I was. I went to court and got those files back, but I, I couldn't get the cover shot. It was missing. And um, those guys were really good friends with Jeff Stockwell and, and had also talked in his ear and so forth. So, like, there was no way I was going to be like, yeah, Jeff, let's go reshoot this cover so I can get this magazine out that's already at the printer and on its way back with a new name on it. Yeah. Um, 
with my files and so forth, you know. Who do you think paid for the film? And, and it's just crazy. It's really fucking nuts when you think about it. You know, yeah. it's, it really is nuts. But, um, yeah, and then they actually went after me for that last paycheck, too. So it wasn't enough just stealing my entire life's work and just sliding everything over without having to put any of the groundwork into actually building a magazine and being completely clueless. You know, I understand youth and naivety and so forth, and I can understand how it would be like you could convince yourself that you were justified in doing what you did. Um, but I think that I think that at some point somebody is going to wake up and go, fuck, <laughs> fuck, I really did something horrible. Yeah. Like, I really had no right to do that. That was, like, so bad. But, I, I mean, that day hasn't come yet, and I don't know if it ever will. But, uh, you know, that, that was a, a really, really shitty thing to do. After all those years in the industry, that was my send-off, uh, an industry turning its back on me and my few Im Im trusted family employee friends that I thought taking everything I had and leaving me with the IRS and the debt and the bills to the tune of about $168,000 and liens. I'm still coming out from under that still to this day. So, yeah. you know, you can't just like, and the subscribers, the, the thing that really killed me more than anything was the thing that had always kept me going with the magazine was my subscribers writing in, you know, like you, Todd, like I still have to this day, right down the street, every single letter that was ever sent into Daily Bread. Yeah. I have every single letter and wow. boxes because the subscribers were what kept me going, you know, it was like. Because they were me. This was about them. Yeah. So when all the industry shit was around me and so forth, it was like that, that would always be the like thing that kept me working late at night and whatever, was knowing what it was going to bring to another skater just like myself. Yeah. And uh, so when, when they thought that I abandoned them, when they thought I quit, and they thought that I, especially when they thought that I took their subscription money, and didn't give them a magazine for it, that was what I couldn't bear. Like, that was really heart-wrenching for me. Yeah. And But, you know, I looked at it and, the, and where the industry was at the time and the situation I was in and so forth, and I literally, from that day, when I came back from the courthouse and knew, you know, once the... the uh, um, what's that retainer, whatever it is that I had on them, when that was lifted because they returned the files and I knew that uh, that magazine was going to be coming back any day and there was nothing I could do. Like there was literally nothing I could do. Um, I just walked away. I didn't cry or scream or call anybody. And I had made that one phone call and gotten the cold shoulder and I was like, that, that's it. Yeah. And I just, I just literally walked away. I had to figure out who I was again and what I was going to do. And, you know, it's, it's tough. It's like having, it's like the death of your entire family. I mean, I had friends all over the world. And suddenly I felt like everyone had put a knife in my back. Everyone had abandoned me. No one gave a damn. And I just wow. felt so, like, I just climbed in a hole. I exiled myself. And I did not talk to anyone 
in skating for five years. Yeah. Like five years. Could not do it. Could not bring myself. I'm actually almost in tears right now. It's, a, it's just it brings up all these like crazy emotions to like every time I have to go through and tell the story or like every time I get to it, you know, like this is actually the first time I've ever publicly said what happened. Yeah. I've never said it out loud to anyone, you know, like um, I've talked to Kato, I've talked to uh, a couple of old friends, you know, like maybe a handful, like literally a handful, like five, and they're the only ones I've ever talked to, um, and uh, a guy in England named Dave Mac McNamara, who like you should tell all of your listeners out there to check out his magazine, Wheel Scene. Uh, he wanted to do an interview, and we just, I don't know what happened. Uh, it's probably my fault. But um, they should, you should definitely support him. Have you heard of his magazine? Will's Scene? Wheel Scene. Wheels. Wheel Scene. No. Yeah. If you haven't, check it out. It's, it's He's putting out a free publication. It's mag. It's music, skating, uh, lifestyle type. Yeah. It's really good. Yeah. Cool. So, yeah. Anyway, but... Um, yeah, where was I? So yeah, I just I went into exile for like five years, and I, I couldn't bring myself to talk to anyone. I couldn't bring myself to do anything, and uh, it it took the reconciliation with Kato to bring me kind of out, and with Bo. Um, Bo has just always always had a really special place in my heart too, because uh, you know from the time he came to me with. Uh, you know, making Daily Bread's first video, he was like so, he's always been so on the ball as far as when he has a creative vision and so forth, making it happen, but always staying so chill. I don't know how he does it. Like, he's a, a role model to look up. I mean, the guy can stay chill in any situation. Yeah. He just rolls with shit, but he just, he accomplishes so much. So it's like when he came to me, um, I think he was, if you're listening, though, to this, I don't remember how old you were, but you were a punk. Um, yeah, and and anyone else would have thought I was nuts, but when he said he was going to make the video, you know, he wanted to make this video, and he put together a little proposal for me and so forth, I was like, fuck, yeah. You know, like, I'd be honored. Like, are you kidding me? Like, I know you'll do something amazing. And Forest Fire was. I actually, uh, I have to say I'm extremely happy and have always been really proud of the choices I made as far as who put together a video for Daily Bread because between that video and Drew, you know, those guys just rocked it. Yeah. It. But, um, yeah, we had some great shit. I mean, like, you know, no one will ever write a story like Arlo. No. Um, <laughs> And uh, there's, I mean, you know, like, I'm sitting here whining and talking about all of this that I went through and that I did and so forth, but uh, Daily Bread was a lot of people, and it was a lot of heart, and, uh, you know, like, a lot of people that really never got anything out of what they put in, and uh, I would say Arlo was one of those people, like, Arlo also, like, he's my brother from another mother. Love you, Arlo, if you ever listen to this. Um, yeah. Daily Bread would never have been what it was without Arlo. That's for sure. But yeah. uh, And Jess, Daily Bread never would have been without Jess. He's the one that uh, put the idea in my head and busted ass getting stuff from the get-go. Yeah. But, um, yeah, once I once I got that over-the-hump thing with Kato 
and I started like talking to more people and I realized, gosh, you know, like how conceited of me to think that everyone turned their back on me. It's not that they turned their, I mean, the advertisers who never called or anything who were, you know, like acutely aware of what was happening. Yes. But I have thousands and thousands of friends out there in skating and so forth who just never had a clue what happened. And, you know, it'd be like me. If one of my friends just dropped off all of a sudden and I've got a shitload of them, they're all over the world, I wouldn't be, like, necessarily knocking on their door. What, where are you? It, it When I saw them again, I'd be like, where have you been? Yeah. So, you know, I had to just let go a lot of a lot of that and just realize, you know, number one, of course, the earth doesn't revolve around me and no one's keeping tabs on my life specifically. So I just needed to, like, be like, whatever, you know, let it go. And also people tend to not have much empathy in things that they haven't experienced themselves. Yeah. It's like, it's like if you have, when you're younger and somebody loses a, a parent or something, you don't, you don't get the impact of it. And then when you get older and you like maybe get close to losing a, a parent or a close friend or something, it's, it's not until, you know, like a simpler example would be like getting your heart broken. You know, you just until you feel that feeling you just can't have empathy or sympathy for what someone else is going through and so true yeah you got to really take that into i learned that real early on cuz i used to just be like oh my god and it's like you know think about it when something's going on with someone else unless you work really hard to put yourself in their shoes and try to feel what they're feeling you can get close to maybe thinking you might understand, but until those emotions are actually going on in you or the pain is in you, you know. But anyway, beyond all that, everything now is, uh, I, I couldn't be happier. I'm really, well, needless to say, I think we all know what magazine I was talking about, right, just to end that. I always, I always said there could only be one magazine, so let's just leave it at that. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but uh, anyway, like things are, are great. Like Bo's putting together all these old man sessions and barbecues and stuff here. Um, we're all on Facebook on the OG bladers. You know, there's guys like you out there with mushroom blading. To me, the industry right now, where I see it, you know, I'm I'm really out of the loop. But like, what I see is real. You know, it's like it's finally what I always. It's like it's all grown up. You know, like it's finally to the point where it's nothing. Yeah. It's just skating. And uh, that is a great, great place to be. It really yeah. is. Because right here is where everything actually gets born. So I'm going to have to say that I believe 20 years after the fact, we are kind of in year one. You know, right around year one for rollerblading as we know it yeah. and what we want from it. And uh, it's it's in so many different places now in such a good way that, like, it's kind of weird because I see the same heads. I see the same faces and the same, like, top skaters. It's almost like time stood still in a weird-ass way because during the 13 years, 13, 12, you have to pardon me. I have, like, no sense of time. But uh, um, during all those years, there were so many different eras of who were the top skaters and the top pros. Yeah. And it and it, I, I call me crazy because that's totally apropos or whatever that word is, but uh, it seems like time stood still from, like, the last issues of Daily Bread 
to now. Is there other big name pro skaters? Did everything just like stand in time? Like who were the new guys? Yeah, I think in a lot of ways that's really true. Like the the people that are at the top now, they were the same as the people who were at the top when the magazine died. Yeah, it's like yeah. time stood still. Because yeah. there's nothing there's nothing that's introducing a new era at at any time. So it's like we were we were constantly turning over like, you know, whoa, the, the somebody amazing. And I'm sure that there's really amazing skaters out there that just I mean, yeah. I know there are that just you know, that's the one thing that uh, with the explosion of the internet and the media and stuff, everything is so scattered about. Yeah, I think that's what it is, is that w- like when when Daily Bread was around, the people that you featured, it was really easy to to look at them and say, mm-hmm. okay, oh, this is the top dog. This is the all-star. This is the Chris Haffey. This is like whoever. And even even at that time, the videos that would come out, like had a lot more impact and they had a lot more meaning and now it's like there's so much being produced online there's so many edits and and people are they're less celebrity mm-hmm. because because there's no big um magazine or video pr- production s- saying this is the person that you should all be watching this is this is yep. the best of the best isn't it funny how that happens Everybody wants to be a star, but then when everybody's a star, nobody's a star. And nobody's a star, yeah. <laughs> but in, in a way, in a way, that's kind of a more intelligent way to view it because, <laughs> really, we're all just people. Yeah. The idea of celebrity is slowly dying because it's then, an unintelligent, it's yeah, an unintelligent but, thing to say. Oh, this person deserves more respect than this person. I mean, but we're then all the you same. Said it. We're all just people. Yeah, and you you know what the human nature of people is to segregate, yeah, to categorize, to tier, to form tribes, to place value as intelligent people. The only, you know, if we want to start getting into mantras, the only thing that creates us, or the only thing that separates us from utopia, is opposites. We're on a plane where all we understand are opposites. If it doesn't have an opposite, it does not exist to us. We haven't achieved a Zen type of state where we can actually experience or see things without opposite. Wow! I think the the closest thing to that would be uh, like the Asian and Japanese cultures, because in their language, and I find this to be totally fascinating, in their language, they don't. Their language doesn't have opposites. Hmm. It's conceptual, from what I understand, and you can imagine that that changes their perception of the world around them because for us our languages are based on opposites good bad light dark all of our words exist in opposites yeah and theirs don't so i think that that uh, until we get past the opposites you know until we get past that primal nature of needing to create a tiered structure and only only be able to like identify ourselves as to what we compare with then uh then that'll be good, but the utopian environment just doesn't work with the the mindset that we have right now. But things no. are changing, and that's what's so bizarre to me right now and why I love what I do um, as far as being a geek and building these databases and so forth because um, 
I watch how everyone jumped on MySpace. You know, it was huge. And then it kind of got commercial, and then everyone jumped to Facebook. And then, like, Facebook gets commercial, and it's like everyone's having this this internet, social, everything, information orgasm. Yeah. And it's been going on for years now. Ever since we got this new toy, it's been just everyone's been going ape shit with it. But, <clears throat> again, everyone's awakening to their true nature and that's why the local scene magazines are doing well. Because people are like, ah, too much information. I just want to know what's going on. Just give me this little isolated community magazine. It's just too much to take. So they, like, want the space. So it's like you've got Facebook where you've got 10 million friends and 10 million things going on. And you will find yourself starting to seek out smaller communities, smaller uh, forums, smaller places uh and, and that's what what i see happening all over the place is like it's gone from like global networking stuff to like you know what let's make networking on our website so like if our website is about uh music let's make a a music facebook just here for these people who are interested in this not to the global everybody like let's stop vomiting everything everywhere and let's just you know i don't need 10 million friends I need 10 friends that I actually relate to. Exactly. So I see that happening, and I'm always telling, like, the clients that I deal with now, I'm like, you know, they're like a corporate company or something, even though I mostly deal with, like, art galleries. But, like, um, they'll be like, oh, we need to, like, get on Facebook or Twitter. I'm all like, no, you don't. <laughs> but that's the hot new thing. That's the trending thing or whatever. And it's like... You know, I find myself back in the same position I was in the beginning of Daily Bread where I'm like, no, dude, why would you want to, like, align yourself with that? You're not a Facebook friend. You're a company. Yeah. If you want to build a community, build it on your website about what you do and yeah. bring people in to your community. You're just an oddball over there trying to make friends with people who just aren't looking to make friends with you. Yeah. So it's just awkward. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so I actually have it on my list of things to do. It's been, like, a big goal of mine. Now that I'm all, like, super geeked out with all of this information and stuff that I do, I want to put dbmag.com up. Do it. Yeah, but it's, it's on my list. I've got to get my band website up. I've got to get dbmag.com up and uh, get all the magazine archives and so forth up there. That'd be amazing. And, yeah, so any of you guys who are listening, if you're going to email me and ask me if you can put the photos up, it's a, seriously, I'm serious. I'm really going to get to it. I swear. Wow, I that'd always, be amazing. I, yeah, I wanted to do something, you know, for my subscribers. And yeah. I I kept, I've been, this has been on my mind now for like, what, uh, since 666 to uh, <clears throat> do something. And I don't know, I've got some boxes of t-shirts, I've got videos, I've got... Oh, you want to talk about a painful day? I, uh, you know, obviously had a large number of magazines, very heavy, and could not keep them in storage anymore. Couldn't afford it, so I was able to like keep two boxes of each issue that actually had two boxes to be kept that weren't yeah. sold out. And um, I took pictures, but and I'll probably put those up on dbmag.com too. But uh, the entire street was lined with boxes of magazines for the recycler to come pick up. Wow. Ouch. Ouch. Yeah, that was that was really hard. But I have two boxes of each. And uh, 
I wanted to put together, you know, obviously I can't afford to do anything grand, um, but I uh, just want to put something together. And when I think of it, I will let everyone know, but like I uh, want to put something together for my subscribers that never got those last issues. They are owed by me. Uh, I owe them and I will do something, but I don't know what um, just yet. That's exciting. Figure something out. Yeah. Oh, well, Angie, this has been amazing. I Can think you believe you it's actually midnight right now? It's midnight, yeah. <laughs> I feel like I'm just sitting here talking to you in my room, which I am, so it's kind of weird to think that a lot of people are actually going to hear this. Hi, all of you that are listening out there. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, I'm sure they're going to love it as much as I, I hope did. so. Yeah. Don't hold, it, don't hold anything against me. I'm just trying to tell it like it is and and say it all out there. I'm kind of half delirious, so if I got all like exactly. emotional whiny really sorry no you did you did a great job and i'm really honored that this was the uh first time that you've spoken about all this stuff publicly well you know it's kind of uh it's kind of fitting isn't it since you were like one of those people that like of all the people that got dicked out of all of this you were the most undeserving you'd finally getting your first ad in <laughs> you yeah totally get dicked <laughs> you have no idea how much that haunted me, dude. Like, I just, I immediately knew you guys were, like, also brothers from another mother. And I was like, these guys just, like, oh, my God, this they're so undeserving of this. This is so shitty. But look at what you've done. What yeah. are you doing? I want to know more about what you're doing. Like, what is going on up there? Clue me in. Um, I'm just, uh, I'm going through, like, this, just a... Uh a lot of inspiration i'm just being inspired to do a lot of different things this podcast included Mm -hmm. and skating is more fun than it's ever been Mm -hmm. and i'm starting to write a little bit nice yeah i'm drawing a lot and i'm 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 also working in the tech industry i'm a web developer that's what i do for my career yeah dude yeah (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> brother from another mother yeah. exactly yeah and that's awesome to like go to work and learn a lot of stuff that i can put towards my passion and yeah it's we're gonna have to yeah. like have some we're gonna have to geek out on some like conversations so i can like figure out what you do and what you work in and so forth and where we can like help each other yeah for sure there's a lot of that going on out there Totally, yep. Are you going to be making it out to any of the, uh, you know, John Julio is going to do his event again this next summer? Like in yeah. July or something? I usually don't. No? I usually stay away from... Anything things. industry? Yeah. <laughs> I like to stay on the outside looking in. Well, dude, I don't blame you at all. Yeah. So that's good then. Yeah, but it really it was... It was all those, I mean, like, back when we used to get Daily Breads, there wasn't, like you said, there wasn't the internet, and there, we couldn't just watch new stuff, or we couldn't just look at new pictures, and so when a new issue of of Daily Bread came out, it was so exciting. Mm-hmm. We'd go to the gas station and pick it up, and then look <laughs> at it over and over and over. It was and exciting that was to like too. The, the daily, that was the Daily Bread, that was like the, the monthly dose of inspiration. Yep, I know, it was... Right? It's funny because, like, I, I think I, I, I get really excited, too. But once that issue came out, man, I did not want to see that thing again. Because by that time, I'd been reading it for, like, 
days and days and days nonstop. I was like, oh my god, I can't look at another page. My eyes are going to bleed. Yeah, I dude. I understand that. But who do you skate with there in Canada? Um, I skate with my friend Joey, of course. Yep. Joey McGarry, who makes mm-hmm. all the wonderful videos. And I skate with Leon, who owns Shop Task. Mm. And he's actually doing really well. He's got a few stores now around Canada. Mm-hmm. Roll-biting shops. So he's his thing is really taking off. He's got a few like just strictly rollerblading shops. Yeah, totally awesome, dude. Yeah, he's he started with an online shop. Well, he actually started just out of his car, mm-hmm. and uh, then he opened. He finally opened up a shop in Vancouver, and he's recently opened up a shop in Montreal and in Toronto. That is so awesome. Yeah, and see, uh, everyone else had to die for that to happen. Exactly. Otherwise, he would, you know, it's like it's got to be gone for him to be able to come in and provide something, and there'd be a supply and demand. Shop Task, that's a great name too. Yep. I like Check that. him out at shop-task.com. Shop dash task. What did I say? Shop <laughs> dash. Dash it's late. task. I know, dude. Like I'm seriously like I don't even know what we just talked about. I'm like on another planet, delirious. I've got all those paint fumes, but uh, yeah. And uh, I'll uh, I'll uh, actually shoot you out some tracks so you can hear our band when I cool. get them in the next couple of days. Yeah, so if, if you're interested. Yeah, I am. Yeah, I'm interested in anything you want to send me. We'll stay in touch. <laughs> Dupe in the public. Yeah. Okay. Well, you want to go to you want to go to sleep now? Yeah, I'm gonna go to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> but you thank hang, you so you much. Wanna, do you want to hang up first? <laughs> <laughs> no, you. No, you hang up. You hang up. <laughs> All right. Um. <laughs> I could actually, I really am delirious enough to sit here and go, no, you first. No, you first. Okay. Yeah, you want to hang up? Sure. All, All right. right. Bye, Angie. Thanks again. Bye, Todd. Thank you for Bye. the opportunity. Good night. You're welcome.